Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux. Take me to church. Yes, we're doing a show on Sunday. I'm sorry I was unavailable yesterday, but because we're all about the professionalism, we just shuffle it around like that deck of cards in an eight-armed octopus poker dealer. So I hope you're having a great evening. Hope you're having a great week. Mike, who do we have first? All right, up first today is Tim. Tim wrote in and said, I acknowledge the objective truth of ethics and personally act according to them. However, I cannot determine why I should adhere to them. Could you please clarify why a person should be moral? Go on. Do you have impulses that lead you in the opposite direction a lot? No, I, I don't. I, I do my best to adhere to the non-aggression principle and volunteerism, and I... I completely acknowledge them as logical and solid, but I'm having difficulty uh, on my own, in my own, let's say, deductive logic, crossing that gap from, okay, so that is the, the science of morality. Now, what is, what is the reason to be moral? Like, what is the reason to adhere to that, that logic? Yeah, I mean, you may be asking the wrong guy because my emotional argument as to why be moral is sort of like someone with OCD arguing why you have to wash your hands 500 times a day because <laughs> it just feels really weird and bad if you don't, uh, which is not much of an argument I, I accept. But um, yeah. if you're having doubts about why be moral, I'm going to assume that you have counter arguments to it. So what, is the count what, are the, what are the counter arguments to living virtuously? For you, no, I, I don't. I don't have an argument against it. Let me let me see if I can <laughs> really. Out. I I would submit that you have not thought about it very much if you don't have arguments against it. How about this? Let me give you the logic that I had before I arrived at where I am now, and maybe since you're smarter than I, you can point out uh, where I've gone wrong. Is that okay? Well, um, hopefully, I won't. I may point out that when you say I'm smarter than you, I may be mis you may be mistaken about that. But but go ahead with your logic. Let's see what we can get. Okay. So originally, when I was approaching uh, voluntarism and anarchism, I was really arguing from consequence, which I know that that's not your preferred uh, starting place. And, and the reason why I I could justify to myself adhering to voluntarism is because in my mind I would envision a better society. And I could see it as being more profitable for me and the people that I love and everyone else. And now that I, I've changed in that I, I do acknowledge that the ethic of voluntarism and non-aggression, it makes sense. However, I can't, I almost can't figure out like, okay, so I, I get it like logically, but I can't figure out why to do it if I'm not doing it for profit. I know that sounds like greedy and all that, but I, I consider, and I understand that you also consider uh, profit to be virtuous as long as it is, you know, not violating non-aggression. Yeah, I don't know that I would characterize profit as virtue. Um, okay. I mean, it's it may be the effects of keeping your bargains, of paying your bills, of honoring your contracts and so on, which would be virtuous actions, but... Um, so for you, uh, you would have a higher standard of living, more money, more freedom, uh, and, and spend right. less time filling out 1040 tax forms and so on, right? That's sort of one of your arguments. Yep. Right. What else? Well, that's, 
I mean, that's how I like arguing from consequence. It was easier for me to understand like, okay, so this is why this is a more beneficial mode of behavior because it increases my standard of living and will increase peace, reduce poverty. And then when I, when I switch to thinking from ethic, I'm able to logically understand it, but I can't, I don't understand like what the, the driver for being moral is if I'm not thinking from consequence. Yeah. And of course, if you, and there's a huge section of humanity who've specialized in plausible ideology, religiosity and, and politics and nationalism and, uh, uh, racialism and so on. There's lot, lots of people who have developed the sophist set of genetics. In other words, they can convince themselves in the moment that what they're saying is true enough to sweep you along in their sociopathy. So yeah. there is an entire class of human beings who have developed the capacity to tell the most outrageous lies with a straight face. And that those people have developed over hundreds of thousands of years or tens of thousands of years, and they have enormous uh, profits. Uh, they make an enormous amount of money. Now, of course, they're generally parasites and, and uh, feed off the uh, human condition and so on. But if you say, well, I'll make more money in a free society, it's probably true for decent and honorable people, but there are lots of people out there who are neither decent nor honorable and uh, would view the advent of a free society with a Cronenberg-style injection of central hyperdomic needle horror to the base of the brain. Uh, you just think of some uh, crappy uh, teacher, uh, some inefficient DMV employee, some union boss, some politician, and so on. Well, they've designed a system where they regularly peck add power and control and security and they get the little dopamine hits of security and power and they're not about to give up that kind of system right so when it comes to uh, to profit or to making money or to having security and so on yeah it certainly is true that everyone and uh, most people in a free market over the long run would do a lot better than people now but it's hard to imagine say george bush the younger or Barack Obama, I mean, what would they be doing in a free society? I, I think that they'd be selling cars of questionable value with the rust painted broadly over to um, people uh, who did not speak the native language uh, and regularly moving their businesses. That would be my guess, as opposed to sort of having the zero, 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 zero magic code to the magic missiles uh, of uh, humanity ending political power. So um, I, I think the argument from effect is, is very hard to make. Um, I can give you some other uh, reasons to be good, if you like. But, Mike, I think you wanted to mention, um, as you did, I, I think you wanted to make the case, as you did in our first job interview, for, for evil. <laughs> well, in uh, this society, evil appears to be very profitable. For so, so many people. I mean, you touched on the politicians. You know, it was profitable for Bernie Madoff in, until he got caught. That was a Oh, problem. The Wolf of Wall Street. That's uh -huh. a movie to watch uh, about uh, 
Let me sell me a pen so I can stick it up your nose and suck the remaining money residue out of your sinuses. <laughs> well, even now, it's kind of weird. That's a great example of the Wolf of Wall Street character. I, his name uh, escapes me. But uh, even now, that guy's kind of heralded as, wow, look at all that cool stuff that guy did. Sure, he defrauded people out of an untold amount of money and ripped people out of their life savings. But, uh, you know, he snorted coke off of a hooker's ass and did some cool stuff in some way. So, yay! Yeah, he's a good guy. Elliot Spitzer has a TV show. Uh-huh. Bill Clinton is an elder statesman. <laughs> and today, Marion Barry uh. died at the age of 78 because apparently he'd replaced most of his bone marrow with crack cocaine during the 90s. So for those who don't know, it's the mayor. Uh, what, Washington, D.C.? I mean, I can't remember. Some mayor of some big American town. And uh, in the 90s, there was a sting operation. Um, and they caught him smoking crack with hookers. And so, but of course, he's on the left, right? So the left-wing media is like, controversial politician. <laughs> controversial Peace Corps worker Charles Manson is getting married. Um, it's, he's like a smoking crack, which, which uh, crack, for those who don't know it, um, uh, like rolled particularly through African-American communities in the late 80s and 90s and destroyed – uh, huge. It was like this massive tsunami of fireballs that went through and just gutted a lot of the African-American communities. Of course, it was used in other places, too. And uh, that the mayor would be using this stuff with hookers. <laughs> Controversial. No, a criminal, in fact, just just criminal and, and hideous and horrendous. And this guy, you know, gets a, a fairly nice write up in the left wing media. So, yeah, very, very profitable. And uh, I mean, people like uh, Joseph McCarthy. Uh, and uh, all that get terrible write-ups despite doing some enormous good in trying to keep the world safe from the spread of communism. So, uh, sorry, I don't mean to take over your speech, but yeah, that was a pretty good case for to be made for, you know, if you if you can find the right Black and Decker machinery to remove your conscience and, and exist as a no-shame-based life form, uh, you can do pretty well. All right, so, so my question, if you don't mind me jumping in, Tim, is... Given, given that in this world it can be incredibly profitable to be evil, what is the elevator pitch for being a good moral person? What is this short elevator pitch for morality? Well, it's love and hatred. I mean, love and hatred. Do you want to fall in love and do you enjoy um, combat? <laughs> right? We all strive for peace, but we all love conflict. Um, we are all lazy, but at the same time, we'll put huge amounts of work in to achieve laziness. And so if you want to love, you, you have to be good. And I've made that case elsewhere that love is our involuntary response to virtue if we are virtuous. And one of the primary virtues that uh, generates love in others is the moral virtue of courage. And courage requires danger and opposition. And so if you want to be loved, sadly, you cannot live a life of safety. Uh, you, you cannot live a life of safety if you wish to be loved because you must be doing good in the world. When you are doing good in the world, you are harming the interests of evil people who will then try and do you harm. So if you want a life of security and safety and inconsequentiality, life like a high spear of javelin that disappears into the stormy seas of history, leaving barely a bubble in its wake – then you can have that life of security, and there's comfort in that, and I understand all of that. Nothing wrong with it in a way. But you'll never know love 
and you'll never know real happiness. Real happiness, according to many studies, arises when you try to do something that is important and difficult and has an element of risk or danger in it. And the more important, the more difficult, and the more danger there is in it, the happier you are. Everybody wants to have this continuum of happiness, like you just want to have an orgasm all day long. <laughs> Sting accepted. Uh, it's a little tricky to to maintain that. Uh, so you must um, uh, work uh, very hard uh, if you wish to be loved and if you wish to love others and if you wish to have the joy of combat. We love combat. We love fight movies. We love mixed martial arts. Um, we love war movies. We uh, are viscerally excited by uh, combat. We are a predator species, a very tricky <laughs> predator species. And why be good? Because fuck evil. That's why. Because fuck evil. Why would insane idiots talk about the sun-centered model of the solar system during a time when you could literally get burned at the stake for doing that? Because fuck superstition, that's why. Why would people talk about evolution when it clearly states in the Bible that the world is 12 and a half minutes old? Because fuck superstition, that's why. Why would we want to talk about the non-aggression principle? Because fuck sociopathic predators, that's why. Why would we want to talk about honest, secure, stable money? Because fuck intergenerational debt. Fuck the selling of fetuses off to foreign banksters for money to bribe constituents too dumb to know the consequences of their own voting. Because fuck evil. That's why. Fuck them. That's why. And good. Yes. You know, if you want to go into battle against the Nazis, because fuck Nazis. That's why. You want to go into battle against communists? Because fuck communists. That's why. Fuck the ever-swelling, ever-growing predation and swirly tumbleweed from hell, gathering ball of tsunami bullshit that passes for thought in this world. Because fuck lazy people, because fuck stupid people, because fuck people who won't, as they say in Fight Club, I fucking hate the pandas that won't even have sex to save their own species. Fuck them. Because fuck evil. Fuck the stupid teachers who do nothing but propagandize. Yes, they should be subject to the free market so they can fall down the economic ladder to the position that they're actually qualified for, which is to ask you if you want your fucking fries with your Happy Meal. Fuck the stupid teachers. Fuck the bullshit unions. Fuck the debt. Fuck the Fed. Fuck it all. That's why you get out of bed in the morning to say fuck evil. Well, I'm sold. <laughs> that was very passionate. So just to, to summarize so I understand. Um, okay, you have to say it even more blandly than that. Hang on, more monotone. Hang. Wait, that was very passionate. No, wait, no, flatter than that. Hang on. <laughs> that, no, I, I can't do it. But anyway. No, 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 you did. You did get my emotions going when you were speaking. Um, I could do that for like two hours, but we have lots of callers. So. All right, so... So you're summarizing fuck evil and be virtuous because it'll bring love and happiness. Is that correct? Well, it brings love and happiness to yourself to sanely fight immorality. Uh, and every time you fight evil, uh, you uh, shoot up a flare that allows other people to see evil and to see that someone's fighting it. You know, the, the, the true philosopher is always the first one over a trench that no one knows is part of a war. And what happens is you start fighting something and it looks like you're just shadow boxing or like to go back to fight club, like you're the guy punching himself in his boss's office. So you, you go out and everybody thinks that the world is at peace because the guns are hidden by language 
and compliance, right? So the the the, the billion line tax code uh, just towers over and smothers people, and they just run away from the shadow of all these falling scimitar books. And so everyone complies, and there's this sense of 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 peace due to compliance, you know, because the slaves aren't actively revolting. There must be peace. And so what happens is that the true philosopher, uh, the, the truly courageous moral human being, goes out and looks insane to the people who are watching because they think the world's at peace and you're going out fully armed and suited up with your bayonet and ready to rumble. And uh, as Nietzsche says, those who were dancing were thought insane by those who could not hear the music. And those who are fighting are thought insane by those who cannot see the war. Now, through the fighting, uh, through the conflict, and through the definition of that which is immoral and that which supports immorality, because it's the, the, the gun to the head is the only immorality, but most people, as I've argued many times before, are the getaway drivers for the bank robbery of statism. They're not directly using violence, but without their compliance and support, the violence could not occur. So... You are out there and you look like you're fighting yourself. And then if people look and listen long enough as you pant out the reality of what you're doing, they understand that you're fighting ghosts. And then they start to see the ghosts. And then they understand that you're fighting people. And then they understand that you're fighting language. And then they understand that you're actually attempting to wrestle the gun from the hands of sweaty-toothed madmen. Yeah, there's my hat tip to Robin Williams. And through that staying in the battle and reminding people of the battle, reminding people that the world is not safe, reminding people that history is not over, reminding people that all the goddamn benefits that they enjoy, First Amendment, Second Amendment, separation of church and state, some property rights, some contracts, some uh, philosophy, some, some human rights, uh, uh, all the benefits that people stick their goddamn faces in this pig trough of the present without understanding all the blood that was spilled to secure them a few basic liberties. Uh, they just take those and like, well, this is great. I love all these liberties. And they never, ever think, most people never think of how they could possibly add to the liberties people might enjoy in the future. They just greedily suck down all of the reservoir, basically that rained blood from the skies. They, they, they drink it all deep, a bunch of vampires. They drink all of the accumulated wisdom and value and courage of history. And they say, great, thanks for all those freedoms. Now let me set fire to them. Let me make them burn so that I don't have to lift a goddamn finger. I don't have to drop my mouse button. I don't have to put down my goddamn tablet and get my loathsome spotty behind off the couch to go and do anything to maintain or, God forbid, expand the freedoms that we've all inherited. Most people are like... (laughs) Uh, like the last generations of the Eaton's brothers in, in Canada, they have inherited this unbelievable gift of freedom from history, and they squander the living shit out of it. And they do not think that they have any responsibility to be any kind of spoke or any kind of chain in the bicycle chain uh, that allows us to propel humankind up the hill towards a, a better place. They don't think of anything to do with that. They just strive for comfort and distractions and staying away from the big, big boned T-Rex dinosaurs of history that are continually scouring the countryside looking for anything that moves so it can snap its goddamn head off. They don't think of adding to the inheritance that they have received. They just squander the living shit out of it. Uh, Boomers. And then they wonder why the next generation grows up kind of cynical. 
So, um, yeah, I think that uh, we inherit uh, some uh, incredibly hard-won, hard-fought-for liberties that millions of people died for. And they had to endure the kinds of things which it's hard to even imagine. Uh, When I was writing a novel set in the 18th century, I did research on what happened to the scientists under the tender mercies of both the Catholic and the various Protestant sects and churches, um, uh, uh, tortured, uh, eyes gouged out, tongues cut off, uh, set fire uh, uh, in in pyres of uh, superstitious but very real flames. I mean, God, even winning science, I mean, science had to be uh, ripped out of the ever-pregnant womb of superstition uh, most violently, like with a raptor strike. And the amount of blood that was spilled for every inch forward and upward of the human condition is truly staggering. And I wonder, I wonder if the people could, who, who made all of the sacrifices, I wonder if they could look forward through the tunnel of time and see what the hell we're doing with all of the gifts that they so painfully and bloodily bestowed upon us. And we are uh, cowering with video games, pornography, video distractions, uh, and uh, empty sex, and uh, drinking and drugs, and, and all this bullshit that um, they they delivered a man to the top of the hill so that he could see the view, and he gouged his own eyes out out of laziness. And this just bothers the shit out of me. So why be virtuous? Because you're in an elevator, for fuck's sake. Why are you in an elevator? Why was there no elevator in the ancient Roman empires or the ancient Greek empires or the Assyrian or, or, or Peloponnesian or Phoenician empire? Why was there no elevator there? Because nobody had any kind of free market. Nobody had any kind of property rights to speak of. Nobody uh, had been able to overthrow the warlords and the warlocks that have dominated mankind with swords and superstition since the dawn of history. Why are you in an elevator? Because people fucking fought and died for your freedom. And I'm not talking about First World War or Second World War. That's a topic for another time. I'm talking about the thinkers. The thinkers who moved this shit forward A lot of them died. A lot of them were burned, poisoned, imprisoned, stuck through with swords, um, uh, beheaded. uh, They were guillotined. They were uh, starved. uh, They were thrown in gulags. They were thrown in in towers. And they fought and they uh, starved and they gnawed the bellies of rats that they could catch because people had forgotten to feed them for a week so that you could actually have an elevator. And what are you doing? What are you doing with all that? What are you doing with this incredible gift uh, this this throne that has been built on blood and bone. Uh, what are you doing on it? Well, you're taking a shit on it and wandering off. And so why be good? Because we have inherited gifts and anybody who doesn't even think about paying forward is the worst kind of parasite on the best kind of people. W- would you argue that morality is really the pursuit of happiness? I... I don't. I don't know that I would characterize that okay. it that way. I think it. I think it adds to happiness, but it sure as hell doesn't add. Biologically, it makes no sense to be virtuous. Almost no sense, and this is why a number of um, <laughs> a number of philosophers kind of migtat right men going their own way. A number of philosophers, either gay or or just stayed away from women, because if you are aiming to improve the human condition, you are generally going to do that despite or in the face of endless rejection from women. 
right? Because women need a lot of resources. This is very sort of very brief um, biological evolution. Women need a lot of resources to raise their kids, which means that they can't offend too many people, which means that they have to please a whole lot of people, which is one of the reasons why they don't tend to be, with exceptions, of course, and, and some great exceptions, which I've mentioned on the show before, they tend not to be uh, very innovative or confrontational when it comes to uh, ideas, right? Generally, you know, the women, the men start arguing politics and the women all start tidying up and, oh, let's leave the men and <laughs> let's go off somewhere else and talk about shoes and shit. And it's not bad. It's just the way that biology works. Women need massive amounts of resources for decades to help raise their kids so they can't piss off too many people because otherwise they don't get those resources. And they can't marry a man who annoys a lot of people because then those people won't give them resources. So biologically, if you want to succeed in terms of mating and all of that, then you have to uh, kneel the fuck down in, front, in the face of the infinite bullshit prejudices of the tribe because women generally are the enforcers of culture and religion. As the Germans used to say, church, children, kitchen. Uh, that was what women historically were, were forced to be focused on. And not just by society, but by biology. And so there's not any rational reason for philosophy to exist biologically. Philosophy is to the social body as mutant genes are to evolution. Most of them are disastrous. A few of them are great. Anything which doesn't evolve tends to die off, but anything which evolves too quickly tends to self-destruct. And so in like 95% of all species that have existed have died off, and we're not doing that as yet, partly because we're so incredibly adaptable. And so philosophy, or, or let's just say countercultural thought, which isn't always thought, but anybody who spits in the wind of the current culture uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a random mutation. And if there's no random mutations, there's no evolution. And if there's an excess of random mutations, the biology tends to get kind of destabilized and doesn't work. So from an individual standpoint, most philosophers sacrifice their reproductive capacities in order to help move society forward. And those societies which have no philosophers tend to really stagnate. Think of sort of the aboriginal bushmen uh, of the of the um, outback in Australia. I mean, just same damn thing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And those uh, societies which uh, tend to really get stuck in a rut, like the Chinese culture didn't change for like 5,000 years uh, in any particular way, heavily conformist society and so on. And they get their asses kicked basically by the Europeans. The Europeans are constantly boiling over with uh, new ideas, new thoughts. And this is how the society moves forward. So from an individual standpoint, like no, no mutant gene generally does very well. Mutant genes generally don't do very well, sorry to put it more, more clearly. And most people who challenge the existing social conventions don't do very well biologically, but any society which eternally destroys and represses individual or countercultural thinkers tends to stagnate and gets taken over by some other society that at least tolerates that stuff. And so every evolution is a threat to the existing DNA. Every random mutation that succeeds is a threat to the existing uh, DNA. And um, uh, every 
thinker who challenges existing social convention and who does it successfully is a massive, massive challenge to existing biological structures. Uh, sociopathy, exploitation, abusers, and so on, right? But if you're into the non-aggression principle, the military-industrial complex, the prison-industrial complex, the educational-industrial complex, um, the Fed, the you know the various superstitions, uh, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, blah blah blah. It is a real challenge, and the only alternative is stagnation. So, um, from an individual standpoint, I don't know that philosophy can guarantee you any kind of happiness. But I do know that if you have the capacity to think clearly for yourself and to challenge social convention, yeah, you don't have to do it. I don't know you're going to be that happy not doing it. But recognize that you are part of a larger story in the progress of the species. That's, I mean, that's honestly, it's how I view myself. I'm a, I'm a larger story. In my individual happiness on a day-to-day basis is not particularly important. Uh, I am part of a larger story in challenging the way that people think in kicking people off their com- couches of complacency and getting them to think uh, differently, getting them to think better, getting them to not assume that which seems like gravity or physics, but getting them to question uh, everything that's around them. And as you know, d- does that mean that I'm always going to be happy? Well, I think it's my satisfying way to live. Uh, doesn't mean I'm always happy. Sometimes it can be a challenge. Sometimes there's a lot of eye rolling and sometimes there's a, some despair in that. And um, I wouldn't want to sell philosophy as uh, necessarily the road to happiness. I think that it certainly worked for me uh, that this life makes me happier than any other life I could conceive of. And you are if you are a clear thinker and if you are a challenging thinker and if you help wake people up, particularly if what you do is measurable, not just, well, people seem a bit wiser, but if you get people, as I sort of focus on a lot, to stop hitting their kids, to stop using violence, to stop supporting violence, well, then you have some measurable progress. And um, that, I think, is incredibly satisfying uh, in the long run. Um it's sort of, I, th- I guess it's sort of like if you're going for a gold medal or something, a lot of times you don't want to get up early in the morning. You don't want to drag those logs around if you're <laughs> practicing for whatever you drag logs around for. Um, but uh, it is a satisfying thing when all is said and done, if that makes any sense. It does. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Mike. Did you want to, uh, <clears throat> Mike of Stone, did you want to add anything? Um, it's actually interesting what you were talking about regarding females being more agreeable and not wanting to rock the boat from an ideological perspective and men being more forceful in, uh, you know, possibly overturning the apple cart <laughs> of society. Um, in the book, The Science of Evil, which we've talked about on the show quite a bit, he goes into the biological reasons for this that involve some differences within the brain. And we're actually going to be doing a presentation on that in the near future. I'm not going to go through it now, but look for that in the very near future, an actual breakdown of what goes on in the brain as it relates to empathy and, in this case, the willingness or unwillingness to disagree with those around you. So it's some pretty interesting stuff I was going over last night. Well, and he who controls the eggs controls the gonads, and he who controls the gonads controls the thinking for the most part. I mean, this is why... um, women are so heavily pressured into conformities within particular, say, religion, right? Religion, you, you, you know, you go to church to meet a nice girl. And there's a lot of pressure on the women because, of course, the women are raising the kids when they're young, which is when they need to be propagandized in the superstition and so on and, and in the statism. Uh, 
And um, generally, there's more focus on controlling where the eggs go. And because if you control what women will say yes to, then you basically control what men will do. And um, uh, so, yeah, it is, it's a very strong focus, uh, which is another reason why I talk about female ethics and female responsibility. Um, I don't like the idea, which seems entirely not true, the idea that somehow women are like the tail of a kite, that men make all these decisions and dominate anything, and women just sort of flutter along afterwards. I think quite the obverse is true. I think that uh, women have massive amounts of control and authority in the world. And, um, you know, men propose and women dispose. I mean, men say, can I? And women say yes or no. And um, if we can sort of understand that, then I think we can come up with a very productive way uh, to to change things and to invite women into the arena of ideas more um, openly and more powerfully than I think they've had before. Anyway, um, shall we? Anything else, Tim, or good to go? One, one other thing I'll, I'll say just uh, as I go. Thank you very much for your time, Stefan. I appreciate it. Um, in, in one of your previous call-in shows, probably the most uh, powerful thing you said that, that actually really deeply depressed me was when you said that there are people who probably cannot change in that, and I don't mean to paraphrase, you can correct me, but in that they've, they're so deep in their own psychopathy that their brain has actually like changed and they probably can't undo that. And that, that actually really scared me. Why? Ah, just, it just saddened me that there are actually people who are just gone. No, you're repeating it. Why, why did it scare you? I'm not saying it shouldn't. I just, I want to know why. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question because I guess I realized that people are just uh, killed morally uh, in childhood. And I don't know. It just hurts to see people be treated like shit. Mm. (laughs) Is it a concern for yourself or someone around you? Yeah, maybe I guess maybe now that you probe a little, I'm I'm perhaps I'm a little worried myself if I have a little brain damage that I haven't worked out. Although I to my knowledge I was never abused as a child or anything. Mm-hmm. Or I was. I was because I went to indoctrination. Okay, Did you go, go to ahead. public school, brother? What's that? Did you go to government schools? Yeah. Yeah, were you were you punished? Did you have stupid rules? Were you bored? Were you given inconsequential tasks? Were you given stupid ass busy work? Were you um, aggressed against even verbally for um, thinking for yourself or questioning the purpose of being there? Or you know, but weren't you kind of incarcerated in a, in a boredom camp camp of dusty sardineness for twelve years plus? I was yes. Look, I'm not saying that all child abuse is equal, and uh, but but what I'm saying is that people say. I was never abused as a child. I'm not sure that that's possible in the current world. Right, right. Because there's simply so many lies, so much propaganda, whether it's religion or statism or uh, the cult of the family or whatever it is, right? Which is not to say all families are cult. <laughs> but uh, um, it is, uh, it's hard to imagine 
what a I mean, in the future, I, I completely understand how, how it's all going to work and so on. But when people say, basically, I was never abused as a child, abuse doesn't mean, you know, guys sticking bamboo shoots up your fingernails for fun and profit. And it doesn't, you know, and this wouldn't be on the parents, right? I mean, it wouldn't be like, well, my parents send me to public school, therefore they're child abuses. I don't mean that at all. But in the future, when people look back at how government schools ran, and you can watch a documentary called The War on Kids or Waiting for Superman or whatever, how, how these, quote, educational facilities run at the moment, absolutely horrifying compared to what children are capable of doing and capable of learning. Um, it's, it's horrendous. I mean, the time that I spent in government schools was basically like trying to climb a ladder, like one of those guys who has bricks. I don't know what that thing is called. It's like a half a box on a 45-degree angle. You pile all these bricks in it. It's like climbing a wobbly, shitty ladder with spiders down my neck. But people kept adding more and more bricks to this stuff. And you get to the top, and it's just the bottom of another ladder. It just felt like this endless baton death march of hyper-stimulated boredom, which is the worst kind of, you know, well, the worst kind of, I think, psychological state to be in. And, I mean, I went to boarding school where there was caning and, and all of that. I went to uh, government schools, uh, and they were, I went to, like, I think three or four or five different schools over my childhood, and they were all absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. I mean, you never learned a goddamn principle Remember, there's a PAL in principle. Yes, but there's no PLE anywhere to be seen. And it was all about just conformity. And uh, it was all, you know, there's this old saying about French waiters that they, they deal with you as if they're peeing on you from a great height. The amount of smug, sociopathic, self-satisfied contempt that the adults had for children as a whole. And I, this is... 40, 35 years ago or whatever. So, you know, maybe it's changed somewhat since, but the amount of contempt that adults had for children in all of the schools that I went to was absolutely bottomless. Uh, they really were just almost without exception, unbelievably ghastly human beings uh, who basically just opened up, like ripped open the mouths of children and vomited contempt and bile and disregard and a lack of curiosity into the child's very bone marrow. And maybe your experience was different uh, than mine, but uh, I think that government schools as a whole are just terrible. I mean, there's a little thing on online, uh, John Stossel. There's some black kid who's just, you know, reading way below his grade and um, there's all these meetings that the parents have with the teachers and the principals. And you can just all see them twirling their pens, staring off into space. Nobody gives a shit. And, uh, you know, they get this this poor young kid enrolled in some tutoring program. And within like two months, he's reading at grade level. Mm. I mean, that is abuse. That is abuse. That That occurs in the stripping of potential uh, among the young. Who could we have been if we had been taught passionately by the best? 
by people who really cared about us, by people who monitored and developed our individual strengths and challenged us on our weakness. And that we knew why we were going there to be educated. We were passionate about it. We cared about it. We were enthusiastic about it. It wasn't homework. It was home play because it was so enjoyable. Learning is the greatest and deepest game the universe has ever seen and will ever see. I love, literally love the capacity that I have in this conversation to research new and surprising things for me to to follow the rabbit hole wherever it goes. It is an incredibly engaging and deeply erotic mind journey in many ways, just deeply satisfying. And um, I think of, of how much I love to learn, and which I really only discovered when I was doing my master's degree when I didn't have to take that many courses. I had my own little office, well, not really an office, more of a cubicle. And it really was only when I think I was 27 or 28 when I was doing my master's. It was only then that I realized just how much I love to learn. And that was, uh, I guess, 25 or 24 years after, almost a quarter century after I started government schools, when I mostly had the library to myself and no one to answer to save a thesis advisor for my master's. It was only then, almost a quarter century after the government first got its dusty brain eviscerating meat hooks into my frontal lobes. It was only then that I really understood just how much I love to learn and how passionate I was about learning. Imagine if that was the way it was from the beginning. I don't have to imagine it. I mean, I'm parenting a child who's who's like that. My, my daughter is writing her own stories now. She folds up these little books. She's five. She folds up these little books. She she creates these stories, she illustrates them, and, and she just loves to do it. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just so delightful just hearing her p -t -p -p as she's figuring out the words. She loves to do this stuff. Uh, she's always asking me, Dad, tell me about a show. Dad, tell me about this. Tell me about that. I mean, just wants to know. Everything that's going on is so enthusiastic. And imagine if you'd had that yeah. joy. Our brains my friend, are like the feet of Chinese women 150 years ago, where the women, uh, because it was considered to be ex exciting and erotic and sexy for women to have small feet, the, the, the girl's feet were crushed in vices and squished down so that their toes curled into their heels and they became these little hobbling balls that could never get anywhere. This is what governments do to our brains. And then you see all these poor Chinese women, and this ended like that. Like over the course of like half a generation, it ended sort of the turn of the last century. You see all these women hobbling around and you say, well, my God, we can't, we can't have a running team because this is the way that women are. They can't run. They can't barely climb stairs. They, they're in pain all day. And this is when we talk about a free society and people are like, well, you can't have a free society because, well, that's like saying we can't have people who run because the Chinese women's feet are tortured and crushed. And, yep, we can't have a free society right now because what the medieval impl implements of torture did to the Chinese women's feet, government schools and religions are doing to children's minds. And I don't know how to solve that other than to encourage peaceful parenting as, as much as possible. So, um, so, yeah, when you sort of blithely say to me, well, I was never abused, <laughs> I assume that you mean like people didn't sort of wake up with a, a glib desire to torture you, I certainly accept that. But to say that you do not live in a society that harms children significantly, 
um, that's where I'd sort of part ways. I agree. I agree. I, I definitely did when I when I think in that bigger context that you just provided. Yeah. And I don't look. I mean, again, just to remind everyone, I don't fault parents for putting kids in public school. I mean, that's not even on the top 100 list of things with my uh, parents. That's just what people do. But that doesn't matter. I mean, before people understood that you need citrus and vitamin C to combat scurvy, kids died of scurvy. And that's not because the parents were bad, but that doesn't mean the kids were healthy either. So I just wanted to mention that. Do you know if, according to any of the scientific research you've seen, if a person can actually undo that brain damage? Or are we all just stuck at, not stuck, but are we all kind of just... uh, fated to deal with our, uh, I guess, damaged brains. I don't know what else to say. So you're asking me if I'm a con artist? I don't know. Am I? I don't mean to be if I am. No, because like I'm I'm out back saying, you know, this is Dr. Steph's house of rattlesnake bite cures. And you say, man, I just got bitten by a rattlesnake. Do you think it's possible to cure it at all? It's like, well, if I say (laughs) no, then I'm a con man. I'm selling <laughs> rattlesnake cure potions, so don't ask me. I mean, because if I'm a con man, I'm going to lie and say, sure, this sugar water will total. i got to go now, but let me sell it to you for five bucks and run over the hill. No, but I mean, like, so, aren't some people, like, too damaged, like, like deep psychopaths? Like, isn't it, aren't they too gone to even? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, to my knowledge, and I've talked about this recently, so I won't touch on it any more than briefly here. To my knowledge, there's no cure for a lack of empathy. Uh, empathy is a, a 12 to 13 part complex system of interaction and interrelation that goes on in the brain that all needs to develop in sequence and requires the presence of mirror neurons and requires mod- a mirroring and all this complex stuff. We're going to do a presentation about it just so people understand how complex it is to develop empathy. Empathy is a form of uh, telepathy. Because there's lots of people out in the world who have no fucking clue what other people are feeling. And no clue. You show them a picture of somebody who looks really angry and they're like, constipated? Like they just have no, right? It's not as for a lot of people trying to decipher human emotion is like you and I trying to decipher Japanese as spoken by Microsoft Sam, right? It just, it, it, we can't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to us. And then for people who have empathy, it is an involuntary process that sometimes you would like to not have. Be nice to switch it off sometimes. And when you think of, like I was thinking, was it the other day about, I think it was, his name was Naifong. He was a prosecutor who went after the Duke lacrosse team. uh, I think it was four members of the Duke, Duke, Duke lacrosse team who were, accused by a a black stripper of raping her, Crystal Magnum or something was her name. And she, I think he's now in jail for some horrible crime murder. I don't know. Anyway. And he was like totally gung ho. And of course, everyone believed because of this, you know, bullshit black, white narrative that, you know, whites are the aggressors and blacks are the victims and so on, which is completely counter to statistics on crime. It's the complete opposite and therefore can only be believed by people who've never had any exposure to facts. And he was sort of in pursuit of these guys. And, you know, he knew that these guys were scared, you know, going to jail for 10 or 20 years. And and he didn't empathize with, I mean, they all had, I mean, one of them at least for sure had an alibi. He was, I think, um, 
at an ATM when the rape was supposed to be incurring the time codes and just getting money out of it. And it was all, and I think he was censored for, this is all off the top of my head, so don't take all of this with any reality. You can look it up yourself. But if you have empathy, you can't hound people like that. Like you can't because you'd be like, well, you know, it's not really a strong case. And these people, these guys are really scared. And what a terrifying situation for young men to, to be in. And, and the moment you get counter evidence, you'd be like, whoa, okay, whatever, right? Like you, if, if power rests upon the opposite of empathy, like if we have empathy for each other, then hierarchy becomes impossible. Because empathy is UPB. I would not like to be hounded unjustly in a legal context. Therefore, I don't want to hound other people unjustly in a legal context or anyway, for that matter. Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's kind of like UPB for like in ABCs of UPB, introduction to UPB. And so this, this I mean, can, could, could you be a prison guard in, I mean, not, not a prison where like rapists and murderers and pedophiles and yeah, okay, good. But could you be a prison guard for people who were caught with joints or people who made mistakes on their tax, uh, you know, like tax form? I mean, that's that's some tough stuff, right? I and mean, if you have empathy, society runs itself. You don't need a state because people care about each other. And that doesn't mean that they can, you know, nice to the nice, mean to the mean. That's right. But if you if you have empathy, you can't really harm other people. You can't steal from them. You can't rape them. You can't uh, kill them. You can't uh, you can't assault them. You, you can't because you 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 hit the person. You feel it in your own teeth, right? I mean, I've never hit anyone my whole life. Never will. Go to go to my grave with Liddy White uh, typist hands, right? Because I can't imagine like hitting someone would feel like punching myself. And so there is no known cure. And again, I'm just some amateur idiot on the internet. So again, this is just stuff I've read. Maybe there's been breakthroughs since I last read it. But they've tried so many different things to cure a lack of empathy, to cure sociopathy, to cure even grandiosity, narcissism. And I don't know that anyone knows how to cure it. I've never heard of anyone who knows how to cure it. Talking cures don't help. They've tried putting people in ice water with aversive therapy. They've tried pumping them full of psychotropics. They've tried pumping them full of LSD. They've tried like encounter hug therapy, scream therapy, putting people in rubber rooms. They've tried art therapy. I mean, they've tried so many different ways to get people to not be cold-hearted bastards who only view other people as utilities to be exploited. And I don't think it's possible. I don't I don't think it's possible. I think I think that it's like if you don't get enough nutrition when you're growing up and you grow up to be 4 inches shorter, well, that's just the way you are, man. I'm sorry. But feeding you 4000 calories a day when you're 25 isn't going to make you taller. It's just going to make you fatter. If you missed out on developmental windows that are essential and nobody knows how to replicate later in life, I'm sorry. Like, I, I think it's terrible. I think it's tragic. I think there are some people who can definitely work to heal themselves. And I hesitate to say never because people can make astonishingly amazing choices. But nobody from the outside 
knows how to make it happen. Nobody knows from the outside how to go back in time and have 12 or 13 complex interactive brain development centers all work together in tandem during a particular developmental window. Nobody knows how to go back and recreate that. And nobody knows how to create that complex system in adults. So it would have to be some, since, since you can't do it from outside, right? I mean, if someone's unconscious, you can give them a tracheotomy, you, you know, if they're choking on something, it's the only thing you can do. But you can't give someone a soul from the outside. You can't give someone a conscience. You can't give them empathy from the outside. You can work to develop that from the inside if you recognize the deficiency and are willing to work through the process. And, you know, I'm a big fan, of course, of talk therapy for various reasons, both personal and scientific. But, of course, as many people have pointed out, the part of you that would notice the empathy was not there and would really want to get it back is the first part that gets broken. And uh, I think that the chance of regrowing empathy in adults or growing empathy in adults is basically about the same as regrowing an arm that's missing. I, I don't think it can be I don't think it can be done. And again, this is just my opinion. There's some scientific backing for what I'm saying. But um, I think that if you are concerned about a lack of empathy and are willing to work on expanding your capacity for empathy, good for you. I think that means that. Uh, you are savable, right? Because right, you're not yeah. like, well, if I could only learn how to fake empathy better, I could really exploit more people, right? Then you know, empathy would be a great cool tool to have in the cold-hearted toolbox. So I, I think if you're, it's the old thing, like if you're concerned about being crazy, then you're probably not. I don't know if that's an iron rule, but it's something I remember reading about. I think if you're concerned about a lack of empathy, uh, if you feel a fear about your lack of connectedness with people and, and want to really work to connect with people, I think that you uh, have a good shot because uh, most people, are, I mean, most people who are without empathy are pretty happy and self-satisfied with what they've got. And we attribute the, the lack of empathy to child abuse? Well, uh, that's my first, if not only, port of call, yeah. And genetics. I mean, is, is it possible? Yeah. Is it possible that there are people who are born with no physical capacity for empathy, no matter how nicely you treat them? I mean, I guess anything's possible. I guess you could have a kid born with bat wings or something like that. We call that autism. I'm sorry? We call that autism and Asperger's syndrome. Which I don't think people really know much about either. We'll go into it in the presentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's certainly. Is, but but those those are not sociopaths, right? I mean, th those are people who um, they they don't camouflage in society that well, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I get you. Right. So, I mean, we're doing some some work on Bill Cosby, and I don't want to get into sort of what we're working on. Um, you've probably heard these allegations of serial predatory roofie rape. I yep. think 16 women have now come forward. And, um, I mean, that guy, can, if it's true, we'll probably never know for sure. But if it's true, then that is a man who camouflaged really well, right? Yeah. So, in, as far, and, and, and people who have autism or Asperger's, they don't have, uh, there's no moral dimension to what it is 
that the, who it is that they are, as far as I understand. Again, I'm no expert on any of these states of mind, but for the people who have sadism uh, and and sociopathy and so on, my understanding is that that's fairly well explained by extreme child abuse. Um, as I talked about with Mike Cross years ago, to me saying, well, someone's a sociopath and they never experienced anything negative as a child is sort of like me going to the doctor and saying, well, my arm is broken and nothing broke it. Uh, <laughs> it, doesn't see, it doesn't make any sense. Again, I could be wrong, but that's uh, where my um, understanding is at the moment. Mike, I mean, you're plowing through uh, this book. What, how close am I, what I'm saying to, to what I remember reading a couple of years ago? Um, because it's, this is all very complicated stuff and I just went through it last night. So some of it is fresh and some of it is not, but my understanding is based on what I read yesterday and I have yet to go through and vet this, but uh, in the science of evil book, they talk about how people with high level autism and Asperger's don't have the brain development. They, the brain systems, the 10 to 12 brain systems that develop and form together to create empathy they don't develop that way. So therefore, they're physically incapable of experiencing empathy. It doesn't mean that they're evil. It doesn't mean that they're bad, but it's a different way of thinking. It's very systematic. They look for rules and patterns and um, things like human interactions and how they work. They can't be immediately predicted. Their brains are not set up in a way to where they understand that. So, Whereas, sorry, but, but sociopaths uh, or, or sadists and so on can often be very good at mimicking empathy mm -hmm. right they understand its power they understand people's susceptibility to it you know like if someone comes up to me if i speak japanese and they start speaking to me in japanese i'll reply to them in japanese mm -hmm. right whereas i think people with asperger's don't speak japanese right they just can't right exactly and so there is a difference to me between understanding what empathy is and knowing its power for people you know like the bill clinton's i feel your pain um stuff where he knows the power uh, i think what that Dennis Miller called that dewy-eyed Bubba magic. <laughs> that uh, uh, that, that those those kinds of people really do understand uh, what empathy is and how susceptible people are to it, and they use it, which I think is very different from what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. And there's sociopaths as well that are not evil themselves. You know, you may have a sociopath that's a surgeon who uses his yep. so sociopathy in a way that's actually extremely productive and beneficial to society. When he cuts you, he does not flinch. But, uh, you know, he doesn't feel that. Yeah, somebody who's, yeah, somebody who's disposing of a bomb or something is like, yeah, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I, I, dude, I, a little less empathy is probably good. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I'm looking forward to presenting right. this information in presentation format because it's, it's fascinating stuff and really goes down deep into, you know, empathy, if it's possible for all people to uh, feel it and the biological basis behind that and whatnot. So look for that in the near future. All right. So sorry, we do have to move on to the next caller, but thank you so much for your comments and questions. All right. Thank you, Tim. Up next is James. James wrote in and said, before I listened to Against the Gods, I held the ignorant notion that all atheists must be communists and therefore stayed away from them. However, I do struggle with accepting God's existence. And because of your arguments, I'm having a closer look at atheism and trying to understand the satisfaction of their position. If God, the cosmic and spiritual father that created the universe, breathed life into mankind does not exist, then does this mean that the universe and all within it is simply a random happenstance, which has no deeper intent? Am I an agnostic hipster for trying to locate such intent? 
<laughs> I don't know. You're wearing lobster pants and horn-rimmed glasses. <laughs> uh, you, you say you're struggling with the existence of – I can't remember. Mike, could you just read yeah. that part? You said he said it's struggling with – it struck me. I can't remember what it was now. The existence of God or, or the non-existence. You're struggling with the non-existence of God. Um, well, it's the same thing. It's, it's struggling with whether it exists or not. And I suppose... No, 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 no. No, hang on. Hang on. Sorry to interrupt. But it's important to be precise about this. Okay. Because, because when it comes to the existence of a deity, there's two reasons generally why people reject the atheist arguments. Number one is that they have some problem with the logic of the atheist position, right? And, and that's obviously right. That, that, that can happen and... But the second, which I think is, is far more important and, and far less discussed, which I think you're touching on, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you're saying the consequences of the non-existence of God are so negative that it's hard to contemplate the dominoes that start going down if I accept there's no deity. In, in the sense of, of emotion, it's hard to explain this. Um, I, I don't disagree with the logic of the atheist position. It's, it's really the, I guess, the precision of the words being used. And when you talk about um, the consequences of not believing, um, for me personally, my consequences are not, they're only... Uh, Emotional discomfort because of my upbringing and because of um, just the general confusion that it it presents. And wait, wait, yeah, all random nothingness and right. I mean, that sounds pretty well, yeah. more than emotional discomfort, doesn't it? Well, I'm trying to understand what random. It's like, wait a minute, are you saying my wife is a robot? Well, there's just a bit of emotional discomfort about that. It's like, <laughs> oh, that's actually more than emotional discomfort, right? Well, okay, um, I guess. Maybe I'm not fully accepting what my argument is or isn't. Um, it's just that from my perspective, I'm like earlier in life, I would have been more devastated by the loss of thinking of God. But what's taken its place is more of a, you could say a scientific understanding, but, but it's, it was also partly spiritual. And now I'm going to into more of a scientific acceptance of things and what's confusing is that what the science is saying there's also a case for um that there that there is a euphemistic way of understanding god and it's like it's just more it's just more points to the point of view so i don't know whether your wife is a robot or not it's just that there there's a plausibleness that's there and i i'm kind of in a limbo of an acceptance and i may i'm not fully once I fully accept something, then maybe those ramifications, the consequences will be felt. Okay, but let's go more into specific uh, because your your issue is um, if it doesn't exist, what does this mean to the universe? Well, does this mean that the universe and all within it is simply a random happenstance? Yeah. If it, uh, the latest thing I was reading about uh, is Dr. Lawrence Cross. He's a physicist that basically talks about how the the universe came from nothing and that nothing is actually something because of, of the energy that is that they've calculated. They looked at the universe and all the stuff that we're made of that came from stars and galaxies, all that 
the carbon and, and all those things that were generated from that are, that's us. But the dark matter, basically they did a calculation of the dark matter that's there. And they've, they've measured the, that basically the universe was created by nothing. And that because. No, no, no. I'm, no? I'm sorry to interrupt you. We, okay. we just did the confusing jaunt through cutting edge physics a couple of weeks ago. And I guarantee you that that is not the issue that you have with the existence of a deity. So let me let me tell you okay. something. Would you be making this case <clears throat> to argue for the existence of Odin, one of the ancient oh. Norse gods? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. What about um, some Zoroastrian deity or what about some Hindu god? No, no. Okay. So you're talking about your god, the god you were raised with, the god you were told was real – by people you trusted in positions of authority over you, right? Yes, but that that idea has shifted, has has morphed into something. It's it's morphed into something else, but hasn't lost all of its value. But yeah, okay, no, no, <laughs> okay. So so y- y- when we talk about the existence of a deity, the the fundamental question is: Were you lied to as a child? Um, I, like, forget I, all this dark matter and okay. this physicist, and it comes down to something much more personal. Okay. Right, so you were told by, I'm going to assume your parents, you were told uh, God is real, uh, Christ died for your sins, um, go to heaven, don't go to hell, here's how you do it, these are the Ten Commandments, these are the Bible stories, this is Noah, this is Jacob, this is uh, Abraham, this is Isaac, this is Moses, this is whatever, right? This is, so you were told all of this stuff as truth, right? Yes. Um, okay, yeah. now hang on, hang on. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, I, will, I won't dominate this okay. conversation, I promise you. But... Were you uh, ever told the arguments against? Um, not until later in life, and I I had had my own how old I had my own doubts. Well, um, I, I suppose I I understood vaguely what atheism uh, meant uh, in my teenage years, but I began to doubt uh, probably around ten or eleven years old that what they were telling me wasn't entirely true. It, it's except the the aspects of God. I, I kind of cling to the things. That, okay, so, 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 so it took me a while. So hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. So if I present an argument for which there are very strong counter arguments without providing those counter arguments, is that honest of me? Without providing the counter arguments. Um, In other words, would you accept a legal system where there was only prosecution and no defense or only defense and no prosecution, no cross-examining of the witness, no physical evidence? Would you accept a legal dictatorship of imposed opinions with no counter arguments to whatever claims were being put forward? Well, no, certainly not. Okay, so it would be immoral to have a legal system with no defense. It would be Soviet. It would be totalitarian. Right? Right. Now, is it fair to a child to have only the defense of there's a deity and no opposition? 
Is it fair to present arguments as true that are, to say the least, highly controversial? And they're highly controversial even in religious communities because 9,999 gods nobody believes in and then one god, right? So everyone's an atheist with regards to the other people's religious deities. So atheism is the foundation, particularly of monotheism, but all religions are fundamentally atheist in that they reject the existence of virtually all the gods mankind has ever dreamed or talked about. So atheism is very well known to all religious communities. It is you know, Atheism far outshadows belief in all religious communities. And so to present to a helpless independent child the case for God as if, not, not, not even without a defense, as if there's no possibility of an opposing argument or idea. Is that honest? No, it's not honest. It's not fair. I, I mean, can I not? Like, if I say to my daughter, well, there's just no God. And boy, you know, that's it. You know, there's anybody who believes it is ridiculous and uh, foolish and so on. I say, well, no, I need to make the case. I need to give her the arguments. Right? Right. So this is what I mean when I say it's very emotional. Because the question fundamentally comes down to, did your parents care about you or were they vehicles for the transmission of superstition as fact? To care about a child means not imposing conclusions on a child, not giving them the answer. We all know a teacher is terrible if they simply tell you to memorize the answers to things. You need to teach the child how to do algebra rather than have them memorize all of these patterns, which computers can do far better and which teaches the child nothing. So teaching a child how to think rather than what to think is the basic separation between a propagandist and an educator. Okay. So when you look at your childhood, is it unreasonable, and I'm happy to hear the case, of course, is it unreasonable to say that although your parents may have been very nice people in very many ways, in this area, they were not honest with you. I, I agree with what you're saying. It's just not, it wasn't exactly my parents who influenced my, uh, or presented that case. Um, it was a multi, it was my grandparents. It was just the church itself. The, the, the catechism school I went to, um, all these influences were there. All chosen, all chosen by your parents. Your pa uh, parents are the gatekeepers of contact with the children. Yes. But it, it, they weren't that re, they weren't that religious, and so my grandmother had instilled in me. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. When you say they weren't that religious, I don't know. I never know what that means. Well, Did they mean believe in like a third of a god? Did they believe in God's arm? I mean, what does I, that mean? I guess that's kind of what it is. It's not as being strict and following the dogma of religion. It's instilling doubt within what the religion says, and it's only believing in certain things that um, make sense to you. Uh, like my grandmother would say, don't believe everything in the Bible because it's, you know, it's full of shit. But she she went to church and she uh, she went to uh, 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 get money for the church and help support the church. She was someone who uh, took solace in that religion, but wasn't very religious in the sense that she was out there drilling things into my head that here, this is what you should be thinking. Well, hang on a sec. So she said, don't believe everything in the Bible. Right. And how did she help you know what was in the Bible was true and what was not true? 
Well, yeah, all right. She didn't. She must have assumed. I've read me in conversation. I was bringing certain things up, but um, I don't fully remember the specifics. I just remember her. We were. Ha- oh, so well, hang on a sec. So you came up with problems in the Bible, and then she told you don't believe everything in the Bible. Right. Correct. So she fogged you. She presented to you things that were true, and then when you found ways in which they weren't true, she she said, well, some of it's a lie, but I'm not going to tell you which parts, and I'm not going to ha- tell you how to separate the truth from falsehood. Well, I'm just going to fog you because you've outsmarted me on a few bits of dogma. N- that, that wasn't – I don't believe that was her intent. I think that it was just simply to – that she wasn't going to – she didn't know how to articulate it, and – um. It, she wasn't going to go into the detail. She was just saying, I was bringing up a point, and she's saying, don't believe that. And that was her... But that's... It, wait, 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 hang on, hang on. Hmm? Okay, I don't know what intent means in these situations. I mean, if you've got psychic abilities, please let me know. In fact, just well, tell me in, in my brain. <laughs> right? But saying you, you've got to believe this stuff to get into heaven... Yeah. And then, well, some of it's a lie, but I'm not going to tell you which parts are lies, and I'm not going to tell you how to separate the lies from the truth. Doesn't that just make you paranoid? Well, uh, I can I can see it could. Just at that at that particular moment, I don't remember being paranoid. I remember having doubt of the the dogma of the religion that that I grew up with, that where that I was supposed to grow up with. And she, no, no, but your grandma's no. I'm just going with the example your grandmother gave. Your grandmother did not say it's dogma. She said some of it is divinely inspired and some of it is lies. Okay, but but which is which, and how do you tell? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't. She didn't, she didn't specify that, but she just gave me enough doubt. But dude, oh my god, oh my god, I'm sorry, I got to keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. You're not getting how important this is. Okay, look, if I sit you in front of a plane. That is flying at 30,000 feet with 100 passengers in it. And I say to you, some of these controls are reversed. Okay. You got to land this plane, man. Some of these controls are reversed. Okay. And some of them are not. And 100 people's lives depend on you. And your life depends upon you landing this airplane safely. Some of these controls are reversed. And some of them are not. And I'm not going to tell you which. Now go land this plane. I can agree with what you're saying. It's just I don't. I. I she she didn't specify. Well, all right. I don't think I I don't think I've articulated what she said properly. And I, although I no, you have the, no. I, I'm I, not going to hear this again. She told you some parts of the Bible are true and some parts are lies, and she didn't tell you how to separate them. And, of course, she can't tell you how to separate them because there's no rational way to separate truth from fiction in the Bible. Okay. Right? I mean, there's no rational way to do it there's no, because well, there's no God. Okay. And so there's no divine inspiration. There's no bits in red which are dictated by God and bits in yellow which are dictated by man and bits in purple which are dictated by the needs of priests and right bits and stuff that comes later and right there's no way to rationally distinguish between truth divine truth and falsehood in the bible it's either divinely true or it's not but you can't cherry pick there's not a buffet because the whole thing is supposed to be this is what god dictated for mankind to get into heaven right okay so i'm obviously raising an impossible standard to say well how how would she tell you which parts of the Bible are true and which parts of the Bible are false? And how would she know? Well, I, she couldn't possibly know that. No, I guess, okay. 
She couldn't know that. I guess in terms of when you say cherry picking, if we were to say that Jesus creating, you know, uh, water from wine, we I can look at that. I see. Sorry, he creates wine from water, just Sorry. to be precise. <laughs> Maybe the other one is more like just drinking wine and peeing, but okay, go ahead. All right, whatever. The, the, point, the thing is that you're looking at a, a change of state from something when you, you look at that instance, you say, well, that, that can't be true, or that it would, it, you would have doubt just in that instance of thinking of that. And therefore, I can, like, I can, under, I can take the Bible as, or the religion as a euphemism for something else. I can ignore the things that I don't think are, that make sense, and just look at that, well, Okay, it means something else then. It means something that, and I and I, that's why I can't really listen to that. But I can take with it the intent of them or of writing it in terms of the the Christian values that that they talk about. Just the Ten Commandments; those things are values that I look at and say, okay, well, that makes sense to me, and I I, I believe that's the intent. They're, no, so that's they're the not. Thing. No, so the commandments are not values. And they're not philosophical. The clue is in the word. Commandment. Okay. Right? A commandment is not an invitation to thought. Especially when you've got the infinite fiery gun of hell pointed at the temple of the soul. It is a commandment. I mean, I wrote a whole book on ethics. And the book was not, thou shalt not initiate the use of force, or I'm going to set fire to you. That would have been a shorter book to write, considerably easier on the trees, a little bit easier to digest for people, and the exact opposite of philosophy. They're not values. They are commandments under threat of eternal death. The Ten Commandments are death threats. They have nothing to do with philosophy, they're the exact opposite of philosophy. Do it or I'll burn you forever is not philosophy. It's not even blackmail. It's infinite death threat. I will torture you forever if you don't do exactly what I say, even though I won't actually define very much about what I say. But we would never accept that as being part of any rational system of instruction. Do what I say, or I will torture you forever, is the exact opposite of philosophy. And if a human being were to put that forward, he would go to jail, and rightly so. So the Ten Commandments don't talk to me about values, or allegories, or ethics. These are infinitely combustible eternal death threats for failure to comply with arbitrary authority. It is totalitarian in a way that human totalitarians couldn't possibly imagine achieving. Okay. I, I suppose I've been ignorant of the history of the, uh, of the religion, but in terms of when you, the expression of commandments... I I can ignore that expression and still look at the meaning as as a value because it's saying the same thing as a philosophy of saying don't kill if you if you, the non uh, 
you know, if you say don't kill people and, and you say I command you not to kill people, you're still saying don't kill people. And that's what I'm hearing. Right. Don't don't kill people is not philosophy. OK, that's like saying I've got a cookbook called Make Meals. OK, <laughs> don't tell anyone about anything. OK. And really, come on, you know enough about the Bible to know that if you have the Old Testament deity having the unbelievable gall with a giant white whiskered straight face saying murder is evil, are you kidding me? Okay. Are you kidding me? I mean, God smites down pretty much the entire planet except for Noah, his wife, and some hard-to-identify opposite bald testicle mosquitoes. Right? I mean, he kills kids is still in the womb. He kills newborns. He kills people before the age of reason. He kills old people who are just on their way to the priest to confess for their sins and gain absolution. He kills the entire planet because he's angry. And then he has the nerve to say to human beings, murder is evil. That is about as insane a situation as anyone can imagine. If I were to substitute, when I ask the question, if I were to substitute the word creator, substitute the word God for creator, would you have the same, would we be having the same discussion? Well, no, because you're talking about the Ten Commandments, which is Judeo-Christian. Okay. And therefore, we talk about the Old Testament, right? Okay. If you're going to say, I'm going to make a more abstract concept, well, then we go into the problems of agnosticism. Are you talking about consciousness without matter? Um, I suppose that... <sighs> I mean, it would have to well, be, right? If it's consciousness with matter, it, then it's alive. It's, it's not... The word consciousness, that's what I mean. It's not... In, in applying it to the physics that I'm talking about, it's not exactly appropriate. It's not, there's not a precise... Okay, so it's not consciousness then. It's not, but it could... It, it, is there, could there be something... Dude, you know you're doing exactly what your grandmother did. You know that, I'm right? I'm just confusing myself and everything. No, no, you're fogging me. I'm fogging Because I'm pointing out rank contradictions. And I'm not doing this because I want to pick apart your religious beliefs, but because I want to get you back to your relationships, which is the real source of the problem. I'm pointing out logical beliefs, and you're simply stripping away definitions, right? Like you said to your grandmother, this stuff doesn't make sense. She says, well, you know, some stuff is not true. And now I'm saying, well, this stuff doesn't make sense. And then you're abstracting out of the Judeo-Christian. And then I say, well, is it consciousness without matter? And you say, well, not exactly consciousness, but it could be something. You're simply removing definitions. Whenever contradictions are exposed... You are removing the definitions that are causing the contradictions, right? So first you say, well, there are these values, these, these, these commandments. And I say, well, that's not values. They're not philosophy. It's like, okay, well, but there could be value in them. It's like, no, because they're death threats. No, okay. Okay, well, thou shalt not murder. Well, that's not philosophy plus God murders all the time. So you keep backing away from your positions by removing anything solid in what you're talking about. And this is the agnostic well, that's position. That's because the word that I used was was obviously inappropriate. God is supposed to creator. Okay, but to create requires some level of consciousness, right? Uh, what's the question is that with, with the physics, we're talking about how here's a physicist who's saying that 
something came from nothing. And that because of the, they've calculated of with the, the missing energy that's there, they've calculated this makes sense that nothing is actually something and that there is no need for a God or a creator for this, for this universe to happen. And that there is actually possibly multiple universes. So it's, it's just, I start out with God because that's how I, you know, when you say that we're against the gods, it's, I guess to me, God means many different things and, and there's a creator. So it's like, okay, consciousness, it's a, I'm reducing it, but that's a part of what I think physics does. And, but it's showing. Do you know anything, sorry, do you know anything that creates anything that does not have some form of consciousness? I, I don't know. They're saying. What do you mean? No. Well, okay. Can you give me an example? Okay. Here's they talk. And I'm not talking about sort of single cell reproduction or mitosis or meiosis or anything like that. I'm talking about something which is brought into being that was not there before, and it could be uh, um, a monkey stacking things to get bananas or whatever. Can you think of anything that is caused to be created where there's no consciousness involved? Well, particles. What and what they're talking about is the if in the, in a proton, the the picture is that the empty space that's in the proton is this bubbling cauldron of particles that come in and out of existence, and they're saying there's no need for a god for this to occur, no need for consciousness for this to occur. And I'm trying to make sense. I don't. I mean, I I don't know enough about the physics of what you're talking about. Are you saying that? Something is created through intent, but there's no consciousness well, behind it? Well, the intent comes from, I, I guess I'm trying to look at the, compare the human experience, where the problem of consciousness is that we have these experience of visual sensations, um, the quality of things and the mental images that pop in your head, um, and trying to make sense of that compared to like here's as a as a human being, how could we exist when there's there's something there's no intent there and it just pops out of nothing? The the juxtaposition of the two it just seems it's just very perplexing and that's really what um I guess I'm I'm sorry I'm not I'm not sure what you're saying. Are you saying how did human beings come to be? Um, well that's I mean that's bit, that's pretty much known, right? No, well that's pretty well it's it's on a on a much smaller scale of knowing. Because we're made of of particles, we have protons, and I'm, I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not. Um, no, listen. You're you're creating. You're, you're changing topics. You're refusing to answer specific questions. You're I, fogging like crazy. I'm not. I'm not. You are. Not Look, sure. you are. You you you'll listen back to this, and you'll hear me asking very specific questions, and you'll hear you going off on these foggy tangents that can't be followed by any human being with the capacity to listen. I don't. Ent- and I'm not being critical. I'm no. not. I'm not no. trying to be so, mean. So I'm just I, telling you. I, I, sorry, I, go ahead. I understand that. I just said I. I appreciate your show. I really, you know, you validated a lot of things in other topics, and um, the reason why I called was because I enjoy listening, enjoy talking. I really enjoy you. So I don't intend to fog what, you know, the argument. Maybe there's just too much going on in my head to be able to uh, precisely explain, verbalize what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, and, and I apologize for that. But uh, 
maybe I should just leave it at that and say, you know, I, I appreciate the show and, and that's it. I, I, uh, because there's, I, I'm probably going to continue to fog this because there's a lot here and I, I'm, I'm just, no, there's, there's no, look, there's nothing, do, there's nothing in what you're saying that has much intellectual content. You've got some confused ideas about physics. And I'm not saying this because I'm some expert in physics, but I'll, I'll just end with a little monologue because I get that our communication is not uh, flowing too, too smoothly. Um, and, you know, the idea that there's just too much going on, um, I mean, that's, it's sort of like gymnastics versus epilepsy. I guess with epilepsy, there's lots of stuff going on, but it's not particularly graceful. But what I would say is that your relationship to the universe is not any kind of primary concern to you. Your relationship to the people who raised you is your primary concern. We are tribal, social, attachment-based organisms. We are tribal, social, attachment-based organisms. We don't have a fucking relationship to protons. We don't have a relationship to the Big Bang, the dawn of time, or the farthest reaches of the universe. We don't have relationships to alternate universes or dark matter or any of that sort of stuff. We have relationships to people. We are social animals. As Aristotle said, a man who can live alone must be either a beast or a god. We are social animals. It is that very susceptibility to socialization, which is the primary vehicle by which irrationality is transmitted. We are developmentally programmed to obey those who have authority over us and to believe what they say. That's just how human beings work. And the reason why I wanted to talk about your grandmother and was trying to sort of point out the logical inconsistencies is not because I want you to jump into dark matter and protons and photons and all this kind of stuff, but because it's not the universe that becomes meaningless when we accept that we've been propagandized. It is meaning that is stripped out of our relationships, our primary relationships, particularly when we were children. We wish to substitute randomness for God because that allows us to pretend that the absence of God means that we have a changed relationship to photons and dark matter and big bangs and crap like that, none of which is fundamentally true. When we accept that there is no deity, when we accept that religion is rankly self-contradictory superstition, it changes our relationship with our primary caregivers. That is a primary survival relationship for us as human beings. And it is that very susceptibility and dependence that we have the fourth trimester of our first couple of years that is really used by people to transmit these irrationalities. We do not have the capacity to say no as children. We do not have the capacity to independently think against irrationalities of those in authority. When we are children, we are dependent. We must accept. We must absorb. It's not an accident that culture, religiosity, nationalism, and racism photocopy themselves generation to generation. Because children do not have the capacity to say no, which is why fogging works with children, which is why you're trying to do it with me unconsciously, because that's what worked with you. It's not going to work with me. I'm not dependent upon you. I can speak, no, this is not true. No, I could do all the things that you couldn't do with your grandmother and couldn't do with your parents and couldn't do with your extended family and couldn't do with your priests and couldn't do with your teachers because I'm independent. I'm not your child. You're not my child. We can be honest with each other, but you're replicating this childhood mechanisms of fogging 
for things that you would never accept from someone else. I mean, if you ask me what's two and two make four, and I say, well, four is just a concept, but let me tell you about this imaginary kite I once flew on Betelgeuse, you'd be like, what the? You wouldn't accept that. If you ask someone, how much does this car cost? And they say, well, numbers are very interesting. Did you know that there are prime numbers? And did you know that there are these negative numbers and these these, uh, Fibonacci sequences and blah, blah, blah? You'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Just give me the goddamn answer to the question I'm asking, if you don't mind me saying. And so it is not any kind of relationship to physics and other dimensions and big bangs that is causing you problems right now is that if there's no God, if religion is an obvious lie, then what happened is people exploited, not because they're malevolent, but just because that's the way that power works in human relations until people achieve some self-knowledge. People manipulated your dependence to infect you with their own irrationalities, and then when you asked them questions, they further fogged you. Now, you wouldn't accept that fog from an equal, but you had to accept it from those who had authority over you as a child. So did I, so does everyone else who is under the age of... 20 or whatever, right? I get it. It, it. it makes perfect sense. But what you're dealing with here is not that meaning may be stripped out of the universe, but that meaning and closeness and affection and possibly even love may be challenged by you bringing rational questions to people who propagandized you. Doesn't mean that there'll be no love and no, but, but there's a challenge in that. And that's, I think, the level at which I would suggest you work. Maybe you're completely... Right. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe you do have this passionate emotional connection and commitment to maintaining your relationship with other dimensions and big bangs and dark matter. I don't think that's the case. I think it's your primary early childhood relationships that are called into significant question when you think for yourself and when you are critical of the people who tell you stuff that obviously makes no sense. I mean, if you were to go to your grandmother, even now, if she's alive and say, "Okay, you told me some of it was a lie and some of it was a truth. How do you know? How do you know? Cross-examine the witness because lawyers have authority. The courts have authority. So they can do that. But when we're children, we're not lawyers. We have no authority. We have to just go, okay, well, they're fucked. So I guess I can't really go anywhere there. Or, well, they just told me, do as I say, not as I do. So all they said, well, when you're in your house, you can make your own rules. Under my house, you do what I say. Oh, I guess they can hit me saying don't hit because they have power. I guess I got to swallow. You won't do that as an adult. And part of growing up, and I'm not saying you're not mature, but part of growing up is treating people as equals and not replicating early childhood relationships with other people, as I believe, as I suspect, you were trying unconsciously to do with me. So my suggestion is talk to the people in your life who raised you in this paradigm. Ask them the tough questions. Figure out if you can connect to them in ways that don't involve the mutual belief in self-contradictory things or the mutual fantasy that self-contradictions and irrationalities can exist and that we can connect through fantasy. I've always argued we cannot connect through fantasy. We connect through reality. We connect through truth. Everything else is just a shell game and an illusion. So... Sorry for that long monologue. I hope that helps. And if we could move on to the next caller, I would appreciate it. Steph, thank you. I, I do understand what you're saying. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, James and Steph. Up next is Kayla. Kayla wrote in and said, My family insists that I get a high-paying career before I have children, but I think doing what I love is more important. Do you think that in order to start a family, you need to have a high income? Do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see. I used to work in software and I became a podcaster shortly before my daughter was born. Um, so their theory is what? You go and become like a, a doctor or a partner in a law firm and then you have kids and you've got financial security? 
Yeah. Well, it's my aunt and uncle. They basically told me that they messed up growing up. So I have to go get the career, get to the graduate school, get the career, marry a guy that makes a lot of money, and then I can have kids. Well, wait a minute. If you marry a guy who makes a lot of money, why do you need to make a lot of money? <laughs> Because I have to also be smart. So I to be smart, I have to marry someone else who's smart that makes money. Oh, and so the way that you know that someone's smart is to make a lot of money. Yes, that's how, that's what they okay. say, <laughs> but I don't think so. And how did how did they feel that they messed up their lives? What would they say if you asked them or if I asked them? Um, I assume they're not there, right? Yeah, no, they're not here. Um, okay, okay. They well, because they got they did a lot of drugs and then had a baby, got off <laughs> drugs, and wait, then <laughs> they, wait, I'm sorry, they, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. They did a lot of drugs. Yeah. Um. And so the only alternative to not doing a lot of drugs. <laughs> is to have some six-figure income with a giant career. Okay. Uh, <laughs> pendulum might be swinging a little far the other way. And yeah. also, you're taking advice from people who did a lot of drugs, which, you know, <laughs> may well, not be there. Yeah. Well, I mean, because of my past, like with my my foo or whatever, they, they were a little – it was a really bad situation. And uh, when I ran out – when I ran away and got out of the house, my aunt and uncle took me in. So I kind of feel like – I owe them at least to take their advice, but it's almost like they're pushing. No, no, you, you may owe them to listen to their advice. You don't owe anyone to take their advice. Yeah. Because that, that's surrendering your sovereign consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can't be programmed like a computer. Listen for sure. Don't, no, nobody's obligated to take anyone's advice, right? Yeah. But it, it, I mean, like, I don't, I'm not taking it. Like, I actually am trying to do my own business and everything but it's almost like they're like we love you and support you but you need to be doing better and you're not doing good enough and you're you should be in school still and have a backup plan and all that kind all of right, stuff. All right, so I'm just going to ask a couple of uh, early 20s is that right? Yeah, I'm 22. You you have that silvery voice <laughs> of the early 20s that is like a lovely little dinner bell ringing and ringing in my inner ear. No, it's true. Right. Okay, so um so you're 22, and how many kids do you want to have? Uh, two. Two, okay. And you know that in your late 20s, your fertility is going to start to decline. Not catastrophically, but it gets a little harder. Plus, your energy level is going to be lower because you're not younger, right? Yeah. I actually want to have okay. kids in two years. You want to have kids in two years? Yes. Okay. Um, do you have a sperm carrier of reasonable virtue <laughs> floating around. Yes, I do. I have a fiance. Oh, good. So you have the necessary nutsack with a good heart attached. Yes. That is, you know, important. The internet <laughs> tells me uh, that, that that's how it works. Okay. <laughs> And uh, how much money do you want or what kind of lifestyle do you want for kids? Well, me and him, we, we really just want to to show our kids that you can do what you love and money's not really that important. I'm, of course I want enough. So we're not starving, which isn't that hard to do, but, <laughs> right. but I, I right. don't know. I, I figured even if I did like a small part-time job to pay the bills, that it wouldn't be a bad thing. Like I don't need a set nine to five job to live happily. How much money do you think you could save up over the next couple of years? And you don't have to give me an exact figure. I'm just sort of wondering. Um, well, I have a wedding to pay for in June. No, you don't. 
<laughs> no, you don't. Look, I mean, I'm, you can pay for a wedding yeah. if you want, but you don't have a wedding you have um, to pay for. I assume it hasn't already happened, hence the use of the word fiancé. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you don't have to pay no. for a wedding. No. And I'm sure that your children would rather that you be home rather than out paying for a wedding they didn't even get to attend, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I'm hoping that in the next two years, like I'm getting on this like budgeted plan to pay off my debt and then to actually have a like a stable savings account. But I don't know. I guess I haven't really put a full number to how much I want to save. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, there's some basic spreadsheet stuff mm -hmm. to do, which is you don't need a lot of money when kids are little. Yeah. Like, you don't. I mean, what do they want? Boobs, belly tickles, <laughs> belly farts. I mean, they're basically your fiancé. You'll, you'll get the hang of it. Yeah. It's pretty much the same thing for men throughout <laughs> their lives. But um, you don't need a lot of money um, to, to, uh, to, to, to be a mom when the, when the babies are there. In fact, um, I would choose time over money yeah. for, uh, for babies. So, oh, yeah, sorry, Mike. Yeah, insurance. Are you in the U.S.? Yes. Okay. Well, so, okay, so if you don't have a lot of money, you get some Obamacare subsidies, assuming that this Supreme Court challenge about the state uh, exchanges doesn't, doesn't work or doesn't go through. So you'll get, um, you'll, you'll, need, you'll need to budget some money for doctoring, right? Yes. Yeah. Which... Okay. But um, kids don't, babies don't care how many bedrooms are in the mansion, right? They, yeah. You know. The aforementioned, you know, boobs, belly rubs and all that, that's, that's what they're, that's what they're into, right? So yes. you don't need a lot of money when, when kids are little. And, um, I mean, my mom raised me with very little, we had, we were just I mean, broke all the time yeah. and that wasn't really the issue. You know, people say you need a lot of money for kids, but man, I mean, in the 19th century, like 12 kids in a, in a room, in a, yeah. in, in a farm, I mean, just watch old yeller. I mean, good Lord. You don't need a huge amount of money to, uh, to, to have kids when they're younger. Now, when they get older, if you want to put them in, I don't know if you're going to homeschool or put them in private school or, I mean, obviously, I'm not a big fan of government schools, to say the least. <laughs> Me neither. But, um, yeah, so, but, you know, you can homeschool and that's certainly fairly efficient if, um, uh, you know, you get the right resources and, uh, you know, rather than spending, what, 1500 or 2k a year, uh, a month rather, on yeah. private schools, that's a pretty good job for you to do. You sound like a, uh, an intelligent young lady. So <laughs> I, I would love to do so, that. <laughs> yeah. So if you've got if you've got a guy who can go out and, you know, pull in some cheddar, then um, you're probably going to be uh, going to be OK. You can you know, I mean, I was um, my, my parents had a house when I was first born, but they split up, I think, when I was like six months old. And I lived in a little apartment. We were in a one bedroom apartment for a while. I mean, uh, it, it, you don't, you know, we never had a car the whole time growing up. We almost never went on vacations. Um, you know, food was in short supply at times, like literally yeah. had, to, had to eat, uh, had to eat food that was furry and not like, you know, healthy roadkill. This was like bad fur. Yeah. I actually so, had to do that too. Cause when I grew up, I lived from house to house, car to car, church funded housing. So my family likes to kind of use that against me. They're like, well, you don't want to go through what you went through when you were young. Like, No, but the problem wasn't the lack of money. The problem was the lack of stability. Right? Yes. Yeah. They... The problem was the lack of love. It was the lack of connection. Um, you know, uh, it, it's not, 
uh, poverty that results from chaos and abuse and a mess is not the same as, as poverty, so to speak, that results from a dedication to being there for your kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very, very different situation. Yeah. And I mean, I, homelessness is different from being a monk, even though the incomes are probably pretty similar. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've been really trying hard to, you know, be an entrepreneur. Like, I started a little website, and I'm trying to to make enough off of that, that if I needed extra income, that I would have, I could stay at home if I needed to, but not enough that it would take away time from my kids. Because, you know, that's what I really wanted when I was younger, was someone there for me, but... My family, they're like, well, your kids need to go to a good school. They need to have a good car. Uh, that's good not true. Life and- no, listen, listen. I mean, uh, um, I just read something from Charles Murray about this, and he was referring to another woman's book that we're going to work on doing a review of because uh, it, it seems that which school your kids go to have virtually no impact on how they do in life. And there, there's some pretty strong arguments that even parents don't have, I mean, outside of abuse, mm-hmm. parents don't have a huge, huge impact on the end personalities of their kids. I mean, there's so much that's bound up in genetics, particularly in IQ, but there's so much that's bound up in genetics. Your children, according to the research that I have yet to fully vet, so take this with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. your kids do not need to go to a good school. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter where they go. Um, but in terms of their success in life, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, they measure kids IQ when they're young and that pretty much determines how they're going to turn out. And, you know, it's weird because, you know, I talk a lot about parental influence and I, th- I think it's important. But in terms of, I think Charles, Charles Murray was saying, he, he had four kids with his wife, right? And he's like, he says, you know, I, I like to think that my wife and I helped her kids be nicer people, but the data is the data. And it's pretty hard to to find very strong ways in which parents fundamentally alter their children's personalities, again, outside of, of abuse. And again, just because it doesn't matter where they go to school in terms of how they do in the long run, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter in terms of how they enjoy their childhood. You know, I mean, if they go to a nice school or a homeschool by you, that's better than going to some god-awful government school, even though it may not have a strong effect on how they turn out in terms of their income or, or their um, uh, professions or, or whatever they do. It, it, it's still nicer to go to a school that you enjoy than a school that you're terrified, right? So it's yeah. not like it has no effect in the quality of their life in the moment. But in terms of outcome, you know, people say, well, you got to go to a good school. And it's like, well... Uh, Bernie Madoff went to a good school. Um, Barack Obama went to good schools. Uh, lots of nasty Wall Street people went to good schools. Lots of people high up in the military industrial complex went to really good schools. Lots of leftist nonsense idiots went to really good schools. I mean, some of the Marxist professors who taught me went to really good schools. Uh, and um, Mark Twain didn't. So, you know, it's kind of yeah. hard to... Uh, uh, it's kind of hard to to make that case. But okay, so so my suggestion would be like figure out... The old thing, right? How much money do you need a month, right? You can probably yeah. get by on two grand a month, yeah, maybe twenty five hundred bucks a month, and between the two of you, you know, that's not a lot of harvesting uh, and hunter gathering to be able to make that. Particularly <laughs> if you've got a little bit of money saved up ahead of time. Yeah, you know, if if it's hard to sort of say if I could live my life over because I didn't meet my wife till I was in my thirties, um, and uh, but but 
if I could do it again, I think there's a very strong case to be made to uh, particularly for women. Okay, if I was doing it over again as a chick, um, (laughs) I think there's a very strong case to be made to have kids when you're young. Your eggs are fresher, you're healthier, you've got more energy. uh, And if you get your kids to, let's say you have two kids in two years, right? So you'll be 24. Mm -hmm. uh, And let's say that they're a year or two apart. So, you know, by the time you're 30, 31, a significant portion of the important stuff around child raising, it's the first five years, first six years of the, you know, that defines the whole rest of the time. So by the time you're 30, you got a good chunk of it under your belt, 31 maybe. And let's say you're going to work till you're 65. Well, okay, so you've got 34 years if you want to have a great career. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not a bad way to do it. I think there's a lot to be said about that. Of course, the problem is if you go and get educated now and go and start a career, if you want to be a good mom, then I believe it's important to be home. And so then you've got to take seven years or so uh, out of your career time. And depending on your career, that's, you know, if you're in software, well, you're doomed. You might as well just scrub your brain and start again. It's like, I know QBasic. Uh, and COBOL 85. (laughs) Sorry, maintenance programming dungeon for you. (laughs) So, or if you're in law, of course, the law has changed. If you're in medicine, Mm -hmm. the medical field has changed. I mean, it's hell to get back into things. Even if you're in business, a lot of the financial instruments have changed. Funding mechanisms have changed. um, Even business philosophies have changed. So if you take a seven-year gap, in the middle of an established career, let's say you go out and start a career and then you're 31 or 32, then you've got to take your break. Mm-hmm. And then what are you going to get back into the workforce when you're 40 or 41 when you haven't really kept up with whatever's going on in your field? Now, if you're a waiter, okay, food, get to customer. Not <laughs> much has changed, right? But, yeah. you know, if you're talking about that, then, then you're not giving up much to be home with, yeah. with your kids, right? So if you're talking about some medium to high powered career, well, yeah. You're taking time off. That's going to significantly impact your marketability. And also, you know, if you're I know it's not legal and so on, but there may be some people who are like, oh, she's young. She's married. uh, Maybe she's going to want to have kids. You can't ask people as far as I know those questions, but it doesn't mean that you're going to automatically get the job over someone whose kids are grown or who's a guy or whatever. It's just the way it's just the way that the, the things work to some degree. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say, hard to prove, but. It's certainly a very real possibility. So, so from if, if for, from a money making standpoint, I think it, I personally think it makes more sense to budget small, have kids. I mean, you're not going out of the damn house much anyway, right? <laughs> Depends yeah. where you live in the Hope states, not. but you know they're babies. <laughs> they, they don't want to, you know. Hey, nine feet of snow. Want to make a tunnel? Uh, <laughs> you know, they're they're babies. You know, they're yeah. not gonna. You know, you don't want them to like lick your boob and have it freeze. That's not <laughs> that's not the way it goes. So. I think it's a good case to be made, you know, have your kids young when the money doesn't matter so much, when they get a little older, you know, if you put them in school or you keep them home or whatever, then there's a chance to really make things uh, go from a career standpoint. You know, I mean, if they want to go to college, of course, that can be pretty pricey. But if they're homeschooled, they'll probably get good scholarships, right? I mean, they're stuck in the brain dungeons of public school. (laughs) So I think there's a pretty good case to be made. I'm, I have significant skepticism towards go and get educated, start a career, and then take your 30s off to have kids. I yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think it's 
and I'm, I'm not going to get into any details, but it's not purely personal experience that I'm talking about here. It's, it's a significant challenge. Um, and, uh, I, I think that careers tend to have momentum. So if you start in your early thirties and you go for 35 years, that's momentum, right? Yeah. But if you're like, ah, you know, start in <laughs> my twenties, take off my thirties, try to get back into it in my forties. I think that's, I think that's a pretty tough role. Yeah. It's uh, pretty tough uh, road to hoe. So does that, does that help at all? Yeah, it does. Um, one of the things that my family was really pushing against was I started, a this like little website where I just kind of do editing, which I really enjoy and I could do it from home and I was doing it and I was making enough to just pay the bills. And then, you know, Kevin made the supplement income and then they started, they were really like criticizing it for a long time. Like, well, that's only temporary and you're not going to go anywhere with that. And I'm like, well, it's a website. What, wait, what does that mean that what everyone's going to become <laughs> William Styron? Like nobody's going to need editing anymore. <laughs> Well, gonna be like Mozart writing down yeah. the symphonies and all that. I mean, what does that mean? It's temporary. Do they, do they think that like is English going out of style? Do you not know Mandarin or something? <laughs> well, they think it's because I don't have the doctorate that that's why it's only temporary. They say people are only coming to you because they don't know any better because you don't have the degree. But then, the you know, like a month ago, I just I hired someone who's got like a master's in creative writing and I'm like, look, I don't need the, I don't need the, you know, degree because I can hire people to do that. If you know, because that's what happens when you own a business. But good thing, good thing they're not Bill Gates's dad or <laughs> Steve Jobs's dad. You know? Yeah. You know, you don't have a degree, you can't run a software company. Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. Brad Pitt didn't go to RADA, uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, so obviously yeah. he can't possibly be an actor. I mean. How many, did Linda Evangelista go to modeling school? I don't think so. I mean, how many – Shakespeare, yeah, it's true. He went to government school, but for 12 weeks a year, did he ever take uh, <laughs> theater writing yeah. at the National Theater School of the 15th, 16th century? Well, yeah, it's – I mean, I I don't know. I mean, the idea that you need all these credentials um, – I mean, I'm happy I had a master's uh, in, in this particular field, but um, uh, I also – you know, and nobody should believe anything I say because, because I have a master's. Unfortunately, a few people do. Yeah. So I think that um, uh, if you do a good job, mm-hmm. then the work will you know, quality wins out. People will find you if you're if you're good to work with and you do a good job. You know, we don't do any advertising for this show, really. We keep growing. Yeah. Because I think there's enough quality and utility in what we talk about here. That uh, so yeah, this idea. Do, I mean, do they, they do they themselves have like a wall, wall wall full of degrees and all that? Family. I mean, they they're not really that high up there as far as money is, but they live a. I think they live outside of their means personally. But if I ever mention that, they would get really angry. So uh, there there are two government workers who are telling you how to make it big. <laughs> yes. Do you see any particular challenge <laughs> with that paradigm? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I understand where they're coming from, you know, because it's like, I know that they wanted more for their kids when they grew up, but I feel like. Well, I, wanted more what? More, I guess, resources. Like they had to live in their parents' basement for a while till they got on their feet and then they had to. Was that a lack of education or drugs? <laughs> Probably drugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, 
<laughs> don't do drugs. Like, Stay I mean, in school. Get a government job. I mean, yeah. God. I mean, they may be missing a bit of the larger picture of why their lives have had some challenges. Yeah, and and I can't really point that out because if I if I bring it up gently, it kind of they go on the defensive and feel attacked. Like, well, you know, at the time, wait, wait, best we could have done. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Are you trying to tell me that people who are overly critical <laughs> are defensive about being criticized? <laughs> I guess if you put First that time way. ever. <laughs> Here's yeah. what you should do. I got all these answers. Wait, what about these problems in your life? What are you talking about? That's completely irrelevant. I mean, oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. I mean, I, I just don't think that's a very good approach. Um, yeah. Look, I've got some answers in my life that I think are pretty useful. I mean, you probably listened to the show before. I mean, I don't yeah. tell people yeah. what to do. No, I think there's there's costs and benefits to a lot of choices that we made. I mean, okay, if you're going to go out and talk about strangling hobos, maybe we have a different conversation. But <laughs> when to have kids, I don't know that there's a right answer to that. And um, I think that if you're if you're smart and if you're willing to learn about yourself, if you're willing to learn about how to provide value to people, you're going to be fine in in this world. I mean, unless there's some zombie apocalypse, then I think, or you know. <laughs> scientists wearing sexist t-shirts or, or whatever, oh, yeah. <laughs> then you're, you're going to be fine. You know, so, okay, I'll tell you a really cheesy story. And okay. uh, this is my, this is my rolling balls of Indiana Jones wisdom down the <laughs> hill of years. But so when I was younger, I found a book uh, at a friend of mine's place and it was called a chicken soup for the mother's soul. Oh no. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you. I mean, this was like you open it and like basically tentacles of treacle strike you in the jugular. I mean, they're just it was like seriously sentimental stuff. But I have a soft spot for sentimentality. I mean, you know, give me what used to be called long distance commercials about grandparents reconnecting with grandkids. I mean, it's yeah, I mean I can I can squirt a leak pretty easily when it comes to sentimental stuff. <laughs> and in it there was a story and the story was a woman who was who'd been married for like 30 or 40 years and she was doing the wedding again you know because they loved each other so much and she said you know when i was a bride i was in my 20s and i was so nervous and i was so scared i wish i could send a message back in a bottle saying don't worry everything's going to work out well and I don't know about you. When I, when I think about the number of times that I've been anxious about negative outcomes, well, first of all, everything I've been anxious about negative outcomes virtually has never, ever had a negative outcome. Nothing I fear happens. The things that I end up actually being afraid of are the things that kind of come out of nowhere, like getting sick or whatever. But like I, I was thinking the other day when I was – I don't know, 12 or something like that. I um, pretended to be sick and didn't go to school that day. I can't remember why. Probably some test that I, family life was too chaotic to, to study for or something. And I was watching some daytime TV, some people on some political panel or something like that. Pretty boring stuff, but, you know, this is <laughs> barely post-color TV, let alone internet. Mm -hmm. And... The school called. Now, no call display. It's this rotary dial, right? I mean, mm -hmm. basically one step up from smoke rings. 
pick up the phone and the school's like, why aren't you at school? So I use the wonderfully subjective stomachache. You know, you can't say headache because you can take an aspirin for that, right? You can't yeah. say anything that it could be tested for, right? Yeah. So, so stomachache. And then they said, does your mother know that you're at home? And I was like, oh, shit. It can't be. I don't think my mom, I mean, my mom didn't even know what grade I was in. Like, I bring a note home and she'd have to ask me what grade I was in. So the idea that she'd called the school, unless there'd been some emergency, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, my mom couldn't find a school on a map. Could she have called the school? Is this a trick, right? Yeah. And... I said, like, the day I was like, oh, God, you know, I'm going to go into school tomorrow. And they're going to call my mom. And Right? Nothing happened. Nothing happened. I'm telling you, the number of, like, when I did my master's, it took, because it was a pretty unusual master's, I handed it in. And, it, like, it took forever. Everyone else had already gotten their degree. It took forever. And I was like, oh, my God, did I just spend all this time and all this money trying to get this master's? I'm going to get it. And I, it was fine. I got an A. Guy called me up. Yeah. Hard to, you know, yeah, got an A. All these things worried about, afraid of. For what? For what? What did all that worry add to my life? What did it get me? What did it provide to me? It's like I've walked through my whole life with my head in a bag waiting for a blow that never comes. And all it did was subtract my enjoyment of my life for no positive end whatsoever. Now, the world is incredibly dedicated to scaring the living shit out of you on a regular basis. Advertisers love doing that stuff. If your hair isn't this pretty, you'll never be loved. If you don't have this kind of body, if you don't have teeth that blind the space station when you look at the sun... You will never be loved. If you don't have a good education, you'll never make any money. If you don't go to a good college, you're doomed. Everybody has this incredible incentive. And it's, it's part of the market system. But the market system is conditioned by people's lack of self-knowledge and lack of commitment to virtue and lack of understanding of what love is. And in the absence of understanding what love is, we have to go for base biological attractiveness, right? If you don't know what love is, you got to do a lot of sit-ups and squirt your boobs out the top of your bra on a regular basis. And basically, you've got to titillate rather than become connected. Mm-hmm. And then we, we th- and then we get paranoid, of course, because can we get the right level of attractiveness? You know, a guy who's not so hot that he's a total player, but not such uh, an unattractive people that people think I've settled for for second or third or fifth best. And then, of course. We, we doll ourselves up to make ourselves this pretty to attract people, which is basically using our biology to club them into submission. We, we crank ourselves up to be this physically attractive. And then what happens? Well, we get pregnant. Our bodies fall apart when we have babies. We get old. And then we're paranoid about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we worry about money. Do I have enough money? I remember, oh, my God, so many times. I was like, I was broke. I'm broke. I'm broke. I'm broke. I don't have enough money. I can't eat. I remember being in school and I used to get $100 a month from the government. This is way back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I remember like I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And I'm going to the bank 
I have no money in my bank account. Like, I was shameless. Like, I would take out $2.75 from my bank account to go and have some food. I went to the bank. I didn't even have that. I took 80 cents in my bank account. And I, I'm hungry. And it's Thursday. The bank's not open again, I think, till Monday. I go to the bank with $94 or whatever it was because my parents were broke. And I go to the bank and I want to, I'm not going to go have a feast. I just want, I want to get some money out to buy some groceries. I'm hungry. I go to the bank and they won't let me have the money. They won't let me have the money because the check has to clear. And I got into a, I was desperate. I mean, I can't, I, it was going to be like three business days or something. I wasn't getting the money like Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. It's like, no, I need to eat, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right now your forearm is looking like a rotisserie chicken to me. <laughs> so give me some damn money. I'm hungry. And I said, uh, what do you mean you're waiting for the check to clear? It's the government of Canada. I don't think that, look, my name, my ID, it's not going to bounce. I'm like, it's the government of Canada. Look, look at my history. Look at my history. I've deposited this check every month for the last nine months. Wouldn't give me the money. Call the supervisor. Like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm in a Newt Hansen novel. I'm like, I'm, I'm hungry. Finally, the manager lets me have $20 of the $94. And that was a beautiful thing. <laughs> It really was a beautiful, beautiful thing because, like, I was, like, hands shaking hungry. And that's how tight things were. And I was anxious, scared sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't, like, how am I going to, but it all worked out. I did not starve. I completed my education. I, whatever, like, I, it, it all worked out. I am 48 years old. It's all worked out. Boy, I'd love to send that. I mean, wouldn't you? I'd like to send that back like 40 years. And I'm thinking that that at the age of 98, I want to send it back to 48. It's all going to work out. And you can live like it's not. But then you've just got one foot in the grave. One foot in the giant soul-sucking vortex of imminent disaster. Now, I'm not saying this is your mindset, my friend. I'm, I'm really not. But what I am saying is worry is like singing an aria into a windstorm. The sound gets pulled away. You put your greatest passion into something that nobody can hear and affects nothing other than getting you a cold face in the middle of nowhere. So believe me (laughs) when I say in so many ways, your future by the age of 22 is largely mapped out in terms of if you're interested in this show, I'm going to put you in 125 or 130 IQ right away. You're interested in (laughs) self-knowledge. You understand economics. You know how to negotiate. You're, you know, you have some sense of virtue. You have some sense of, of what love is. You, you, you're going to get married to a great guy. I'm sure of that. And so you're already ahead of, you know, all but 5.999 billion of people on the planet. 
you have access to the greatest educational machinery and technology known to mankind. I'm not just talking about this show. I'm talking about all of the internet. Mm -hmm. You have the Flynn effect, which still largely seems to be on your side that you're going to be smarter than me and smarter than the people who came before you. You have love. You have youth. You have health. You may not have the best advisors in your corner, but you can listen to them and, you know, except, yeah. you know, some of what they say might be of value. But if people have gotten to their 40s and they're not currently living in a cardboard box down by the river on a steady guide of government cheese, they should have learned by then or by now that worrying is completely futile. I, I'm not saying don't have any concern. I'm not saying go smoke crack. I mean, you're not going to do that anyway, right? <laughs> no. But, but worrying, if, if you found the man that you love and you want to have children and you're not going to starve, which you're not going to do. No. If that's what you want to do right now, yes, there will be people who will try and put in all of this fruitless concern and possibilities and what ifs and this and that and the other. And I tell you, as a man who has spent, I don't think I'm a huge warrior, W-O, not W-A, maybe W-A, <laughs> but I don't think that I'm a huge warrior, but the times that I have been consumed with worry are times that were barely living. You know, the, the, the dread, the fear, the concern, the what ifs, the, uh, you know, the escalations, the catastrophes, the what. And again, it's not like this stuff consumes me. I don't have a huge problem with it. But when it does happen, those times are barely living. And we got the rest of eternity to not be alive. Let's not invite those tiny coffins of worry beads and death and ashes into our present. And I'm saying this to you because you sound to me like a very together and an intelligent woman who's in a good position. You've got skills. Uh, you've got someone who's got a master's working for you. That's not bad at 22 because I guarantee you they're not 22 unless <laughs> no. they're some sort of super genius who went to college at 12. So you've got a man who loves you. And so I would say... It is going to work out. It's going to be fine. And the only thing that's not going to be fine is worrying whether it's going to be fine. Life is going to pitch stuff at you. You are going to make good decisions with the information that you have. And those decisions, because you're interested in this show, which is not just because of the show, but all of that means, those decisions are going to be better than 99% of all the people. On the planet, 99% of all the people of your level of intelligence in your neighborhood because you got <laughs> philosophy. So your decisions, whatever life pitches at you, your decisions are going to be good, solid decisions. And it is all going to work out. So do what makes you happy. Do what makes your fiance and husband happy. Trust that you will handle whatever life throws at you in a very productive and functional way and promise, promise yourself that you will worry only in hell itself. After you're dead, 
you can promise your worry wart brain, if you have one, you can promise that you will worry after death for eternity if that's what the worry wart part of you wants. But now this time is for living. And the tiny death of worry is something that can be a mosquito in your coffin from here to eternity if that's how it's going to work out. But to hell with worry in the here and now. It prepares you for nothing. It contributes nothing. It averts nothing. It only brings disaster into the present when there's no guarantee whatsoever it's going to happen in the future. <sighs> wow. Thank you very much. You, you sound like my fiance. <laughs> <laughs> oh good well, <laughs> yeah, he, I assume he's in his 20s so I hope that I've approached the <laughs> maturity of someone in their 20s that's good yeah that's good yeah he, that's great to hear he he's I actually because of my past I grew up with like a lot of anxiety and um worry of course and and ever since I started dating him it's I, I really have started worrying a lot less about everything and he's always that like the little shoulder angel coming in to say, everything's going to work out. It's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. It's, I don't know. It's just kind of nice hearing it from you. <laughs> Thank you. Good. You're very welcome. And uh, do keep us posted how it goes. And um, again, my advice is uh, a little less on the wedding, a little more on the kids. If that, yes. if that is a choice, um, then that would be my suggestion. But of course, yes. uh, you must... Take your own conscience as far as that goes. But thanks very <laughs> yeah. much for calling. And do drop us a line. Let us know how yeah. it goes. Oh, um, before I go, real quick. So just to kind of kind of like stick it to my family a little bit, can I just give you my website name so that if anyone who ever needs an editor can come to me and just support my goal of not falling into a government job one day? <laughs> It's absolutely your choice. I'm I'm certainly happy if you want to um if you want to deal with an FDR editor listener, please go ahead. Yes, I, I would love to have more of those kind of listeners come into my site, but it's done the right way dot com and it's W R I T E. So if anyone okay, needs fantastic. an editor <laughs> It's <That's> nice <clears throat> nice to have a lady who's calling in with a website we can actually talk about. Um some of the earlier ladies who had websites. Um <laughs> were a little a little less shareable uh, and probably a few fewer master's degrees actually maybe some of the fine arts master's degrees would be working there but anyway um yeah so best of luck i hope that well, you, uh, you get some much. business out of it thank you very much and i really appreciate you taking my call and i love your show so thank you very much and uh, best of luck with your wedding and your child raising if you have any other questions happy happy to chat all right thank you very much thank you bye all right thanks kayla um, up next is Quentin. Quentin wrote in and said, I have many people in my life that I will consider emotionally manipulative, manipulative, destructive, and whom I don't trust, but whom I still feel connected to and crave closeness with. So examples include my father, my mother, my ex-girlfriend, and certain close friends. For the most part, they are very troubled, and I do feel powerfully compelled to help them, possibly at my own expense. I've recently been through some confusing close relationships, and I'm very concerned that my mental health is suffering for it. How can I genuinely care for these people while at the same time staying true to myself and my needs? 
How can I know <laughs> that I'm not that I'm acting out of genuine care and not trying to fill my own emotional needs inappropriately by parenting others instead of allowing them to parent themselves? Okay, so um, we'll get to the ex-girlfriend thing in a bit, but uh, <laughs> what about these people do you love, respect, admire? Um, well, um, sorry to kind of uh, waylay things. Uh, I just wanted to say before we started that I really appreciate what um, what you and Mike are doing with the show. Uh, I've been listening for about a, a couple of weeks, I'd say, attentively. I mean, I've known about the show for a while, and I've just discovered the all the the um, family relationships podcasts that you've done lately, and. It's, uh, it's it's been an immense help to me. Um, so I just wanted to say that I really appreciate everything that you do, do that you two do. Um, Thank you. I really really appreciate that. Uh, so um, well, in in terms of what I value about these people, I mean, my family and my no no no. <laughs> Sorry, maybe we drifted a bit from the question. I didn't ask what you value about them because value is neutral. Fair enough. Value is morally neutral. I asked what you respected and admired. Oh, I see. I see. Well, um, shall I kind of break it down my person or? Um, okay, let's start with the ex-girlfriend. Okay, fair enough. Well, Because that, that's the most chosen relationship that you have at the moment, right? Indeed, yes. Um, so my ex-girlfriend is... Um, she's extremely kind. She's very, um, she's very nurturing. Um, she, she means a lot to her friends. She's very, um, she, she's a very decent person deep down, I think. Um, wait, 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 wait. I, I think we may have stepped from facts to hypothesis there without much of a beat. A very decent person deep down, I think. Those two, no, those four words take us in a whole other place, right? Deep down means, well, you can't really see it, but I think it's there, which could be projection or could be fantasy. I think is one of these words where it's like, gosh, what, what do you mean you think? I mean, how long have you known the woman? Um, I've known her for about, um, I suppose I've known her properly for about six months now. Um, but I've known her for What does properly mean? Properly in terms of we've spent a lot of time together. We've... Um, uh, we've gotten to know each other. Um, we've gotten to know each other properly, I, I suppose. Okay, repeating the word doesn't really help me. Did you know her beforehand, before the last six months? I did, yes. Um, we, we were in the same circle of friends. Uh, we we saw each other socially, I suppose, but we, did, we didn't actually interact on a serious level. Okay, so are you saying that she went from friend to girlfriend to ex-girlfriend within six months? Um, that's correct, yes. And how well, long were you boyfriend well, and girlfriend for? A big pardon? How long were you boyfriend and girlfriend for? Two months. Two months? Correct. And why was it only two months? Um, well, um, it's one of, the re- one of the things that I actually still don't know, um, not, not with certainty. Well, let me ask you a, a couple other questions if it's tough. Um, who broke up? She did. And did she express unhappiness before she broke up? She did not, no. So it came out of the blue for you? Exactly. 
and how were things going before you broke up according to your experience <laughs> um it was it was fantastic i thought i'd i'd find find somebody that i um that i really related to that who respected me uh, that i had a lot in common with i i felt very very valued and did she say that she loved you she did yes she, she did and how long after you started France. dating did she say that she loved you Beg your pardon? How long after you started becoming boyfriend and girlfriend did she say that she loved you? A couple of weeks, I think. Right. And did you say it back? Yes. Uh, at the same time or at a different time? Um, at a different time. Right. And... Did she say she loved you uh, from the first couple of weeks until the end of the two-month period and then suddenly wanted to break up? Or was there some other thing that she said in the interim that you said that you thought it was, thing was great, right? Yes. Um, so she's like, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's over, right? Correct. Right. And why did she say that uh, it was over? Well, um, when when it happened, when the breakup happened, she gave me a whole lot of reasons which she later admitted were bullshit. So um, uh, the the reasons that she gave at the time were uh, she feels that we were quite different people. She she. Oh, she, I don't care about. I don't care what she lied about. Fair enough. Uh, well, I'm just, so she, I'm just, she lied to you and broke your heart. Correct, I suppose. So kind, nurturing, and decent. <laughs> Well, um, uh, well, Steph, um, she's she's a very conflicted person, I think. But uh, that's not known. No, that's not what you said. Kind, nurturing, and decent. Yes, I'm not. I'm not trying to catch you out or anything. Yes, I'm just trying to. You give me these adjectives, and Those, then you know, no, it's like saying I'm no. saying to you, listen, man, it's a zebra. It's got shaggy hair, uh, blonde hair, and it's back, giant teeth and claws. And you're like, I don't think that's a zebra, right? I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, look, I, I, I think that her, the way that she handled things and her actions weren't, weren't kind in that instance. But I mean, not everybody is kind all the time, I don't think. She said she loved you. She indicated no problems with the relationship. You were very happy. You loved her. She broke up with you without warning and lied about the reasons. That's not like a a sunspot on the sun, which still gives you a tan, right? That's not a little thing. <laughs> she broke okay. your heart, right? Yes. So that's not a little thing. That's not a people make mistakes. And it's not funny, right? No, it isn't. So what were the real reason, if she said that the reason she gave you were lies? Quinton, what was the real reason that? I, I pressed her about it um, because I, I wanted to know. I wanted her to be honest with me. Um, and essentially the reasons that she gave were, uh, well, in her words, she, she wasn't thinking, she was looking for somebody who was emotionally available and a good companion, but she wasn't looking for a relationship. 
So she wasn't looking for somebody who was emotionally available and a good companion. She was. She was. But she was not looking for a relationship per se. She said that she was rather looking for a close friend. So she was looking for a good man, but not a romantic relationship. Yes. Why not? Well, um, I guess that's something that's only known to her at the stage. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't venture a guess. Now, um, did she say to you when you, I mean, who asked who out on the date or how did it transition from friend to romance? It was, it was, it was a, it was a mutual attraction that built over about two, two to three months. Um, uh, I was the one who sort of took the, the initiative and expressed feelings for her. And she reciprocated those feelings. Correct. So was she lying then or was she lying at the end? I, Steph, I, I, I've got to be honest. I don't know. I have, I have no idea. I'm still confused about it. Does it matter? It matters to me because I would rather know, I would rather know the truth than um, be left wondering, you know, what, what just but happened she's, two months. But she's a liar. So how the hell are you going to get the truth? She is a liar. I don't think that the second bullshit is any more true than the first bullshit. I've thought the same thing. So you can't get the truth from a liar. <laughs> Why is that funny? Um, no, I'm, I'm just, it's, it's not, it wasn't a, an amused laugh. It was a, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I resonate with what you just said. How attractive was she physically? She was very, very beautiful. Right. One to ten. Oh, wow. Um, well, if you would have asked me, I would say a nine or a ten. All right. And you? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I've always oh, come on. Everybody has some idea. I've always thought of myself as averagely good looking. I don't know. So like five or six or seven? Yeah, I suppose in that range. I don't know. Do you have a lot of money? I probably have more than most people my age, but not specifically, I'm not wealthy. Right. Did she meet another man? Um, there was, um, yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 it, it's quite a long story, so I, didn't, I don't know how much detail to give, but there is, there was, and I mean, I, I understand that, you know, my question was more about my relationships in general than not, you know, specifically about my, about my girlfriend, but, um, or my ex-girlfriend. But uh, there, there were a lot of other relationships in the mix. She had just come out of a three-year relationship. And um, there how, was... How, wait, wait. How recently after this relationship ended did you date her? Uh, she had been separated from her boyfriend for about three to four months. Right, okay. Was she living before? I beg your pardon? Was she living? Did she live with him? No, she didn't. Okay. So, you know, three months after a three-year relationship, nobody's fit to date, right? Yeah. I mean, you've heard that it's about, I don't know what the facts are or whether this is even true, but it seems to be a pretty good rule of thumb that it's about half the length of the relationship to recover from it. 
um, yes. to figure out what you did wrong, why it didn't work out, what you could do better, what you could do differently, um, how you ended up in a relationship that didn't work out. Look, everybody wants their relationships to work out. Everybody wants to find someone, fall in love, stay married, have all of those benefits of companionship and romance and sex and parenthood if that's what you want. So everybody wants – so a relationship that ends is a fuck-up. And I'm not talking like a one-night stand or something like that, but mm-hmm. especially when you get to I love yous, you wanted that to be forever at some level, right? Mm-hmm. So – if you want something to be forever and it lasts two months, that's a fuck up, right? And I'm not trying to say you did something wrong or bad, but yeah. that's a massive screw up, right? If I say this bridge will last for 80 years and then two months later it falls down without warning, I'm not a very good engineer, right? Mm-hmm. Wait, I'm not sure what that mm-hmm is, whether that's a disagreement or no, not. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Okay. So when she was in, invested, um, how, how old is she roughly? Late 20s, early 30s? Uh, 23. Oh, she's 23. Okay. And how old are you? Um, 25 going on 26. Okay. So she was in a relationship from 20 to 23. Correct. And do you know why her relationship ended? Um, she said that he was an emotionally unavailable But did she not know that before, like three years? I mean, that's like saying, well, you know, after three years, I suddenly realized, man, she only speaks Gaelic. (laughs) Wouldn't you kind of know that earlier on? (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I mean, I I don't want to speak for her, but I mean, I suppose, you know, it's different when you're when you're new to a relationship than when you're sort of sort of a year, two years, three years in. Did you ever meet or no? You, you must have known him if you knew her socially yeah, beforehand, yes, right? So, yes, you said I'd meet him. And how how uh, how physically attractive was he? He was fairly attractive. I mean, I would if you want to put a number on it, I'd say six or seven, eight. Okay, all right. And do you know who broke up with him? Uh, she broke up with him. And she said because he's emotionally unavailable, and then you're emotionally available, but that's not what she wants. <laughs> yes. So oh. she doesn't know what she wants. Correct. Yeah. Does I, I she have uh, any history of self knowledge? She gone to therapy, read books, keep a journal. Uh, <sighs> did you talk? You said you didn't talk about anything deep when you knew her before you got into a relationship. Does she have any? Well, uh, history so of, of yeah, self knowledge. Say, um, um, well, let me let me let me back up a bit. Um, uh, I. Uh, we're both from a, a background of um, uh, of basically of dysfunctional families and and alcoholism. Um, the the reason we started becoming closer friends just before we started dating was that I reached out to her and started talking to her about um, some problems that she was having. And um, so I suppose, and this was before we started dating. So I suppose. I, sh- I should say that I'd, we did speak about serious things before we started dating. So it wasn't like I went into the relationship without knowing who she was or how much self-knowledge she had. Okay, good. So now you, instead of giving me the background, you can give me the answer, which is, did she have any history with self-knowledge? She is in therapy. She, when, when, I, when I started going out with her, I thought she had a, f- a fair amount of self-knowledge. So, but, um, so she's uh, currently in therapy? 
she is currently in therapy, yes. And how long has she been in therapy that you know of? Um, about a year now, I think. Wow. A year. Do you know if she discussed her relationship with you with her therapist? I have no idea. So you don't know the content of her therapy at all? I don't. Okay. And do you think that if she talked about a relationship with a therapist, with you, do you think that if she said, well, I'm a couple of months out of a three-year relationship and a guy wants to date me, he comes from a dysfunctional background, I come from a dysfunctional background, do you think that's a good idea? What do you think the therapist would say? Probably not a good idea. Right. Now, if she started dating you and then said, well, a couple of weeks into it, I realized that I love him. What would the therapist say? Um, I suppose that therapist would say you should think very carefully about that because it's quite something to say after such a short period of time. You think? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And if she had talked to her therapist about, I didn't, I broke up with the last guy because he was emotionally unavailable and I'm breaking up with this guy because he's emotionally available. What would the therapist say to her? <laughs> um, you got to decide what you want. <laughs> I think the therapist would also say, if you're going to break his heart, you need to be as honest with him as humanly possible. Yes. Don't lie to him. Yes. So either she's not talking about her relationship with her therapist, which is not doing therapy, hmm. or she is got the worst therapist in the world, in my opinion, or her therapist is giving her advice and she's not listening to her therapist, right? Yes. Do you know if she actually is in therapy or did she just say it? Um, she did just say it, but... Uh... Yeah. I mean, if you love someone and you're doing great therapy, you know, it's her choice if she wants to talk about what's going on in that therapy session exactly. with you, right? Yes. And she never did talk about anything that's going on in her therapy sessions. Um, not that I can recall, no. Did your family and friends, what, well, what did they think of this relationship? Um, uh, my family... Um, well, my, uh, my, 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 my family, when they had met her, they were very, they were very enthusiastic about her. Um, uh, but they, they were having some concerns that she was, she was not in a, in a good space in her life. And why were they enthusiastic about her? Well, um, my mother, uh, my mother, uh, really liked her because she, um, she was everything, well, this is, was, this is my mother's word. She was, she was everything that she wanted to be at her age. Um, they were both studying acting and drama. They were both, um, um, yeah, I suppose it's fair to say that my mother liked her. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. But your mother liked her because you, you she reminded your mother of herself. Of herself, correct. And did any, any of them... It, have any concerns about the early I love you's about the past relationship uh, with a man who she reports yes, being the, very different from the, you? Yes. The, the, the one thing that's, that they, that they did say um, 
not just my mother but others as well was that um to be careful because she is she is fresh out of a long term relationship and that is not necessarily good right right and you didn't really listen right i beg your pardon you didn't listen to that stuff too much right no i didn't right right so nobody got that nobody had any insight that she was going to break your heart right no why why do you think that was Um, well, because she, 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 I suppose she didn't really say what she, what was on her mind. She didn't say, she didn't tell people what she was really feeling. And nobody knew that about her. No. So they don't know when somebody's being honest or not, or when somebody's being authentic or not, right? Yes. And you don't either. I thought I did. I know. But you don't. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just no, 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 trying I to call it like I see it, right? <laughs> no, I understand. Uh, you're correct. No, this yeah. stuff's not funny. Please, please try, stop doing that. It's very, it's, you don't try and invite me into looking at this as amusement. Because if it's amusement for you, I've got other people who want to talk about serious stuff. Okay. All right? Your heart got broken. That is not amusing. No. And I have to speak on behalf of your heart here, right? Which got rolled over, right? Yes. So you have a blindness, which is you don't know when people are being authentic. You can't see what I assume in hindsight are fairly clear warning signs. Do you know the boyfriend, right? Yes. The ex-boyfriend. Yes, not well. But you could call him up and say, listen, I'm thinking of dating this woman. What do I need to watch out for? I suppose so. You know, when I, when I'm hiring people... Uh, I say, give me your last employer. I say, well, what happened? Why are they not working there anymore? So you don't know how to protect your heart and other people don't know how to protect your heart, right? At the moment. Yes. And that's a dangerous, right? You, you, you got off pretty easy relative to how it could have gone, where you could have got married and then she left you, taken half your stuff and half your money and at least one of your gonads as a purse ornament. She could have gotten pregnant. Uh, she Like, who knows, right? She could have yes. had an STD. She could, like, six million things, right? Yes. And so if you are a man who has some resources and you have a susceptibility to a pretty face, which we all do, and you don't have people around you who can watch your back and you don't know how to watch your own back, then you are in a dangerous situation. Right? Right. This woman is not kind, nurturing, and decent. Decent people don't break up with people they say they love without warning and then with a continual stream of lies about what happened and why. I'm telling you, that's just not what the adjectives mean. I'll follow. Why is she still in your life? Well, she's still in my she life. She broke your heart and lied to you about it. Why is she in your life? She's not. She's not really. I'm. I'm not. Um, I'm not in close contact with her anymore. We still have contact, but we don't speak. We. I, I made the decision not to see her 
after the breakup. Um, I essentially where I am with her is that I don't know whether I want to remain in her life to, 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 as, as a friend to, to no, help. No, 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 no. Friend. Are you kidding me? She broke your heart. She lied to you. She said she loved you. She lied to you about why she broke up with you. Yeah. What kind of standards do you have for friends? Or are you just hoping for some makeup sex? I mean, what the hell? Listen, if I say, hey, man, let's you and I go into business together. You know, you are like the best person I can go into business. We've got, I've got this great idea and you quit your job and, and you invest and you move out of your place and you sell your car to build up the capital. We invest the money together. And then I just, two months later, I'm like, eh, I quit. And I run off with half your money. Are we still friends? No, we're not. Of course we're not. You were vulnerable to this woman. You opened your heart to this woman. And she fucked you bad, right? Yes, she did. So, what are you talking about, friendship? What virtues does she have that you could possibly pin friendship credibly on? And I know the answer to that, and it doesn't have anything to do with her fundamentally. It's something you already told me, was that she's like your mom, right? Yeah. You know that, right? Yes, I do. I wanted to start with the, right, I'm, I have a shark that circles, getting closer and closer, right? Um, so how is she like your mom? What, what did your mom see and what do you see about these similarities? Well, um, well, in terms of their career paths, they're very similar. My, my, my mother's an actress my, and my ex um, studied drama. Um, they move in the same circles. They're... Um, at, at different points in time, not at the same time. Um, that is what she saw in her. Um, but in terms of how similar they are, they're... <sighs> when... They, they come off as very warm and very, very caring. And... Um, sorry, it's, uh, it's just a bit hard... Um, do you want me to go over your ACE? Um, yes, sure. Okay. So for those who don't know, the ACE is the Adverse Childhood Experience uh, Test. It's a fairly standard set of questions. You had an ACE score of 7 out of 10. That's not good, right? Um, it's not. I should say that uh, I wasn't sure about one of those points, but yes, 6 or 7. Verbal abuse and threats, no family love or support, neglect, not enough food, dirty clothes, no protection or medical treatment, parents divorced, physical abuse towards female adult, lived with an alcoholic or drug user, household member depressed, mentally ill, or suicide attempt. Yes, well, um, not all of those things happen um, in terms of, I mean, how the test was structured, but... uh, that's that's fair to say. Sorry, which didn't happen? Um, I can just go. Do you want me to go through them again? 
Uh, yeah, sure. There, there, there. Not okay. enough resources, dirty clothes, that kind of thing. That 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 was not the case. Um, but there was a second part of that question, which was not feeling valued or loved, which was the case. Okay, got it. That's so. There's a two part to the question. You that still counts, right? Fair enough. Yes. And was it your mother? Your mother, who was the alcoholic, right? Um, both my parents at some stage. Both your parents were alcoholics, right? Yes. And when your mother was younger, was she physically attractive? I assume if she was an actress that, you know, unless she's Kathy Bates, right? Who actually I find very attractive. But um, was she like physically attractive in the way that your ex-girlfriend was? Um, yes. Okay. Right. And what has your, if any, work been towards trying to deal with this significant amount of trauma? I've been attending support groups for the last, well, I don't actively go anymore, but I have been going for about three years. I am in therapy. Um, I have um, I have been taking steps. Okay, great. Now, when you talk to your therapist about dating a woman who was 23 just out of a three-year relationship, what did she, your therapist say? Um, I didn't speak to my therapist about the relationship. I haven't been to a therapy session for um, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. You uh, six months, right? No, no, no. Um, I'd say about about three or four months. But you started dating this woman six months ago, right? That's right. And you went to the I Love Yous in a couple of weeks, right? So. You were you were in therapy, if I understand the timeline that you're giving me. You were in therapy when you started dating this woman. Um, I'd say I was. I had just. Sorry, I'm just trying to think. Uh, I had my last session of therapy, the last one that I went to, uh, just before we started dating. So more than six months ago. So you went from weeks to a couple of months to more than six months. Um, the uh, the uh, we, we started dating about four months ago. And I met, uh, we started becoming, uh, let me say that we started courting about six months ago. Let's put it that way. Okay, so you, let's, okay, fine. So you were about to get into a new relationship with a woman you were very passionate about, since you both went to I Love You's in a couple of weeks, and you thought that's a good time to not be in therapy? With an ACE of seven. I'm being a jerk, and I apologize for that, but I just really want to get this part across. No, I understand. I appreciate that. Why did you stop going to therapy? Well, at that stage, I didn't feel that there was anything that I was really grappling with in my life. You were just about to embark on a relationship when you have an ACE of seven with a woman who also comes from a disturbed and traumatic history. Are you kidding? You, you can't expect me to think that you're serious about that, right? I fired my coach because I wanted to get a gold medal, right? It makes as much sense, right? I follow what you're saying. Because a therapist, your therapist, would have, I think, been very helpful in helping to protect your heart. So you willingly cast aside your support system and someone who could protect your heart 
to pursue this relationship. And I'm, I'm saying this not to make you feel bad, but to tell you, look, you don't have to do this again. Yes. You, you're not at risk if you know what you need to do to stay safe, which is, yes, if you're going to embark on a relationship with the nine or ten attractiveness level of a woman who's just like your mom who came from an alcoholic family like you did, therapy, therapist. Yeah. Job one before brushing your teeth. Right. I'm with you. And there's a reason you stopped. That's the part I'm concerned about, because I think I know what that reason is. Okay. And it's not because you didn't think like, I don't know if you're lying to me or to you or just don't know. Right. Okay. But there's a reason you stopped going to your therapist at the exact moment when your therapist was the most necessary. Because you serve women. You serve the needs of women. And if you'd gone to the therapist, your therapist would have put you in conflict with the needs of women. Or this woman, whether it's your mother or, or the ex-girlfriend, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you didn't want to have someone in your corner that would have put you in conflict with a need that you have to serve the need of women. You were a rebound guy. Right. The woman's come out of a three year relationship. She wants to be attracted. She wants to feel special. She wants to be wined and dined. She wants to be romanced. Maybe she wants some sexual variety. And so she wanted you to do this. Yeah. And if you'd been in therapy, your therapist would have said, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. And then you would have been in the situation where a therapist would have, I I'm not a therapist. I'm just telling you what I think. But you would then have been in a situation where you would be in conflict with a woman's needs. Your Mm -hmm. own needs to please and serve the needs of women. Fair enough. No, what does fair enough mean? What? Is that true? Is that false? I mean, I agree with you. I'm sorry? I, I, I meant I agree with you. Right. So the good news is you have some, hopefully, some insight into how to keep your heart safe since you don't know how to see an incoming missile. And since those around you don't seem to know how to deal with an incoming missile or even identify it, and if you step away from your therapist at the very moment that you need it, then you have a solution, which is if you're going to get involved in a new relationship, find out all you can about the prior relationships, what worked, what didn't, find all about her childhood, find about if she says, I'm going to therapy, what's it like? How do you, you know, what, what happens? What, what's, you know, get some facts. Keep yourself safe. Keep your heart protected. There's only so many times that people can punch us in the heart before it deflates like a broken balloon scattering pieces all over the living room, not to be reassembled. And that's what I want for you is to keep your heart safe. Therapists can really help you with that because they're not horny. Mm -hmm. They're not screaming, eggs, 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 (laughs) egg, 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 egg. Right? Because your balls are like these bolos on a shoestring that choke your heart right Hmm. she's hot 
He's more attractive than me. I'm trading up. Oh, I'm not, right? And if you blunt your heart by this ridiculous, futile, self-absorbed, look, when we care about people, we tell them the truth. That's what I sort of try and model. And I don't mean I have the truth. I'm telling you the truth as I see it. When we care about people, we tell them the truth. Yes. This woman lied about loving you, lied about wanting a relationship, lied about the reason she broke up, and continues to lie about the reason she broke up. If she is young and beautiful, odds are, now wealth unicorn spotted, I get it, odds are she's going to be exceedingly dangerous. Because do you know what? I was in a store the other day, and there was a makeup counter. Do you know what it said over the makeup counter? What did it say? It said, tools of the trade. Hmm. Tools of the trade. You can meditate for a long weekend on that and not be done. Tools of the trade. Hmm. A woman's attractiveness, for most women, a woman's attractiveness is something she is going to trade for resources and status. Resources and status. She will stay with you if she thinks that you are the best she can get. And if her beauty can get her better, she will dump you and move on. Beauty is currency. Biological. It's biology. It's the same with all living organisms. It's not the same with all women, but this is where you should start from until proven otherwise, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Beauty is currency. When you have to buy a car, do you buy a bad car? Do you buy something that is like seven different colors that you need a coat hanger to open the lock and which farts out more gas than a down Spitfire? Hello? I'm here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought, do no, do you buy that? Do you buy a crap car? Something absolutely. Adam Sandler is going to sing about? <laughs> absolutely not. Right. You buy, I would guess, the best car that you can reasonably afford. Right. A young woman's beauty is her currency to get the best man she can reasonably expect to get. And given that vanity is omnipresent, it's going to be more than she can actually get. That's what her, like, that's what her fantasy is. Like, we're all ridiculous this way. Like, I mean, <laughs> so I was, I can't, this is like the, the time frame that gets confusing to me. But um, I need to, I need to look this up because this is how insane uh, people are. Or at least how insane I was. Um, who's the woman who sings that song, Complicated? Good Lord. Um, Avril Lavigne. Avril Lavigne. Okay, okay, good. Oh, you it, it, it comes back to me from a, a somewhat younger brain. Okay, so <laughs> Avril Lavigne. She got married to some guy. 
And I was like, ah, because I think she's pretty. Good singer. Like, mm. the fuck am I going to meet Avril Lavigne? But <laughs> when she got married to some guy, a tiny little part of me went, ah, <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess she's off my list <laughs> because <laughs> in another universe, right? Right. And it's like, how insane is that? Mm-hmm. Aw, she's married. <laughs> I guess that lowers my chances of dating Avril Lavigne. Like, that's insane. I've actually, I've never done it. But I've thought, if I see a really beautiful woman in a car, I thought, you know, if we have an accident, we have to exchange numbers. <laughs> I'll get her number. And it's like, oh my God, stop. <laughs> Park the penis. Engage the brain as best you can. <laughs> right. Now, obviously, Avril Lavigne would be lucky to get a piece of this now that I'm happy to marry <laughs> all. But, mm-hmm. but the reality is, like, you know, Fergie gets married. And you're like, oh. Because, <laughs> you know, apparently she has some humps. I don't know many of the details. There's some kind of humpiness involved. And we all want to biologically use our resources to get the best we can. Now, when you have self-knowledge and you look for virtue, blah, 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 right? Yeah, okay, sure. But most people, when it comes to sexuality, they're like four-year-olds with candy who know nothing about cavities or diabetes or fatness or anything like that. It's just like, well, shit, this tastes good. I'm eating. Mm Mm-hmm. That maybe they'll get sick and they'll try and eat a little bit less next time. But you sure as hell don't do a lot of favors to your body even if you don't get sick from candy, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at a 23-year-old 9 or 10, particularly if she's come from a traumatic household, most likely she is going to be looking for the – Man who has the highest status. Now, if she's biologically inclined, that means the most resources. But she's 23. So she is going to want the highest status man that she can get. And she may date you. But if she is a penis climber. And we're all egg hunters. We got egg hunters and penis climbers. Can I use this penis, these set of penises like a ladder to get up to the resources I feel my beauty deserves? Again, pure biology, not all women, but it's where I start from when looking at people. And if I was single, I sure as hell would be looking at this as a basic reality that this is where most people are. So if you feel that you are the best that she can possibly do, then you will probably have her allegiance. But that allegiance generally will be conditional upon you remaining the best that she can do. And maybe you will. Angelina Jolie is not trading in Brad Pitt for anyone. Because he is like the highest status male, I think, that you can get in the world at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so... 
love <laughs> and beauty don't mix because physical beauty in general is status seeking penis climbing. I don't mean climbing on penises. I just mean using them <laughs> to get up, right? Mm-hmm. And you also need to be honest about this, which is that you sure as shit were not attracted to her because of her deep virtues. You were egg hunting and she was penis climbing. Okay. Do you disagree? Because you, you haven't given me a whole lot of virtues to hang your heart on here. Well, I mean, I, I, I could go on about her. Um, she was certainly very intelligent and she was... Um, we had similar values, but I mean, no, no. Do you have a value called honesty? Yes. Does she have a value called honesty? No. Okay. So that's kind of an important one because if you don't have the values called honesty, there's no other values you can share because all the values require honesty. Honesty is the first Necessary but not sufficient requirement for all other values. So if you don't share a value called honesty, you have nothing in common when it comes to virtue. That's powerful. So, no. You had no values in common. Fair enough. If she understood the value of therapy since she apparently was in therapy, some mysterious no-speak, no-talk therapy, where you don't talk about anything you're doing in the present, if she understands the value of therapy and she wants to date you and you say, oh, I've just stopped going to see my therapist, let's start dating, what would she say? Is this really hard or is it just hard to say? Um... Yeah, I hear what you're getting at. She'd say, no, go to therapy. Hmm. We both come from difficult backgrounds. We're both embarking on a relationship. I'm in therapy. You need to be in therapy too. Yes. Right? I mean, if you, you see those figure skaters where the men are like throwing women up and twirling them around like a bunch of Russian sizzle logs. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. It's no good if only one of them practices, right? <laughs> Right. They both have to practice. They both have to have coaches. They both got to show up at the ice. Otherwise, she's going up. He's going somewhere else for a smoke and she's coming down headfirst on some very unforgiving ice. Right. Hmm. So if you were going to get involved in a skating partnership and say, well, I'm going to practice. The woman's like, I don't think I need to practice. I'm good. (laughs) If you're like, I don't think that's true. Yeah, so she's in therapy and you're like, no, I don't need it. And she's like, oh, that sounds, sounds legit to me. No. You were egg hunting. Which means that your brain was, was being flooded with neofrontal cortex shutting down idiot hormones. <laughs> yes. We, we, no, look, I mean, we've all been there. Nothing yes, wrong no. with it. It's natural. The, the men go into a kind of delirium. And women know this. Mm-hmm. particularly attractive women, they know they have the double nipple remote control male brain shutdown system. <laughs> yeah. Where they get to, you know, lasso your penis and drag you around and <laughs> rifle through your wallet and step on your heart and there's stilettos on the way out. And, and women, all women know that. I was, at the, I was at the mall the other day 
And <laughs> there was a, a young couple there. And the woman was licking an ice cream in a very suggestive way, looking at the man. Okay. Not the most subtle <laughs> sexual display I've ever seen in my life. But literally, I saw the, the man's jaw. You can't see this if you're not watching the video. The man's jaw was just like, holy shit. <laughs> Ice cream blowjob right in front of me. Oh, my God. And you could see, like, his whole body just went limp. Well, not all of it. But, but it's like, you could see, it's like, it's like watching a, it's like watching from space a, a city grid shut down. <laughs> all the movies growl to a stop and the, the streetcars stand there still and the lights go out in the giant buildings and the lights across the right we're egg hunting baby shut down the higher functioning we're going full simian don't think anything that's going to interfere with the sperm <laughs> And being aware of that, again, fall in love with a beautiful woman. She may be kind. She may use her power wisely. But not a lot of 23-year-olds are great at using power wisely. Mm. Yeah, agreed. How much did you spend on the relationship? Not a lot. Um, well, if we, that's if we... why it was two months now, wasn't it? Mm. Anyway, egg hunting and penis climbing is incompatible with love, which is not to say sexual attractiveness is incompatible with love. It's not to say any of that stuff. But if you're surfing hormones, you are not judging virtue. Mm-hmm. Right. And so my suggestion would be, in particular, figure out your relationship with your mom. Because if you ended up dating a woman that your mom thought was great, who broke the shit out of your heart, well, I would go back to the source and uh, try and, and sort that stuff out. And uh, I think therapy, as I always say in these kinds of situations, in many situations, I think that therapy is a very good idea. You got an ACE of seven and you got some resources. You're a young man. Get right with your history. Uh, deal with the tragedies. Mm -hmm. Process the grief, the anger, mm -hmm. the loneliness, the shame. And yeah. um, then you won't be a giant series of buttons for boobs to push at will. Mm -hmm. All right? Absolutely. All right. Thank Thanks. you very much for your call. Thanks Thank to everyone uh, who calls in. As always, it is my massive and deep and abiding pleasure and honor to chat with you all folks. Remember, we're going to be a little bit early this week relative to today. It's going to be Wednesday night for our call-in show. And um, fdrurl.com slash donate. If you would like to help out, you know, you know how many thousands and thousands of dollars we are <laughs> saving people, sometimes maybe even you, for bad relationships, bad dating, bad divorces, bad marriages. And, um, yeah, throw a few shekels our way. We are providing an essential service to keep the hearts of good people safe in this world. And uh, your donation leads to 
people not hitting their kids. It leads to people not getting involved with bad people. It leads to people not having children with bad people. And it has led so many times that I've heard of to people falling in love. And uh, so fdrurl.com slash donate. Uh, help us uh, make a righteous, joyful noise of philosophy around the world. Uh, your support is essential for what we do. fdrurl.com slash donate. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, so much. Have a great night.